0: And you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for around about the 4th of July, 2013. Independence Day, America's Birthday, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I'm really excited to be here. You'll find out why in a moment. It's a very special podcast this week. But first, as I said, my name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week this
1: week is not Rebuild. Uh, I'm Richard Fogge, uh with Undead Labs, and my game of the week is not Lucky and Wild. Is that a real thing? It is a real thing. It's a uh, uh, it's a uh, old-school, 90s arcade game where uh, you had a steering wheel and, and guns. Remember this? It was <laughs> I don't remember game. this at all. <laughs> no, when a couple weeks ago on the podcast, you were you were talking about your game of the week, which turned out to be Defiance, and you were teasing it. You were like... It's got driving and shooting. In right,
0: it. right, the two verbs. Yeah, so Lucky and Wild is driving and shooting also?
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's this horribly awesome old arcade cabinet um where there's a full driving game set up with a steering wheel and the pedals and everything and then two guns uh kind of mounted next to it. And ostensibly player 1 was supposed to drive and shoot and player 2 was supposed to shoot as well. And then uh but we always played it where one person drove and the other two the other person had both of the guns. So I guess I'm talking about that more than it not being my game of the week, but there you go.
0: Fogie, I would not be surprised to hear I almost am gonna be disappointed if this not if this is not the case, that you're the kind of guy that actually has an old stand up arcade game somewhere in your house. Is that true?
1: <laughs> I really wish I was that person, but not yet.
0: All right. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, that sensation, what you just described, Lucky and Wild, I think you can do that. Wasn't there a Mario Kart that was like co-op where one person drives and the other person shoots?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Double
0: Dash? Ah, yeah, that does sound right. Right. Um, well, uh, you, I, I'm excited to be here because you made a, a game that, man, I really, really like. And uh, I can think of... no I just have a lot of questions for you, Foggy. So... Uh, first of all, tell us, so you're, you're at Undead Labs. You are uh, the designer for State of Decay. That's, that's the first game out of Undead Labs. Uh, first of all, tell me, who the heck is Undead Labs and where did they come from?
1: Uh, so uh, we are uh, – Undead Labs is a startup company um, that, you know, I can get into some crazy backstory on it. Um, originally, um, Jeff Strain, who's the uh, founder and CEO of the company, um, was at ArenaNet. And he'd moved on from ArenaNet um, and NCSoft in general, and uh, was kind of hanging out, and doing his, doing some stuff, just kind of sitting resting on his laurels. And he got you know bored, and he had remembered um, having a conversation um, with some very passionate guys who were currently at the studio, who had pitched him uh, a game idea that was essentially what we ended up making, The State of Decay, um, or sort of the original vision for, uh, class four, if you're familiar with the history of the game, which is, uh, class four was the MMO version of the game that was originally pitched. And, um, uh, we, so he took that inspiration, um, decided, you know, that would be a great, um, that would be a great game to make. And I want to start a new game company. He got tired of, of sitting around. And so he started up the studio, um, Recruited a lot of uh, really incredibly talented people. Some of the best people I've ever worked with in the industry. Uh, not very many of us, though. Uh, the team's about 25 people, and uh, got things started. We're up in Seattle, and uh, we make awesome games. Where we try to make awesome games. <laughs> oh,
0: please! You do not have to. Uh, you do not have to stick that disclaimer before it. I, you, you've got. I, I have to say, you've got to be. Um I don't know about surprised, but I, the, the response to State of Decay has been pretty overwhelmingly positive, right? Like, like do you get many people that are like, ah, oh, the, the frame rate, I don't like this. Like, <laughs> it, It's pretty universally adored, isn't it?
1: Or, no, you know, it's a mixed bag. There, there are people okay. that are, um, you know, hardcore graphics snobs, and for them, you know, if the frame rate's not there, or if they're getting VSync errors, if they see any kind of pop in at all, they absolutely, they give it, you know, one out of ten. Um, uh and they hate it. they hate the game without even uh, trying it out and for some people that first impression um, isn't strong enough to 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 get them to the the heart of the game um, but i i would say we're actually a little bit not shocked but certainly surprised at how well um, it's been doing um, i think we're still uh, tracking as the number one original ip on uh, on the xbox live arcade channel and uh you know, we're, we're I think we're the only game behind Minecraft right now in terms of uh, speed of sales, but uh, I think we're still lower than some of the other big hits in terms of overall number. But we're tracking really well,
0: right? And I guess that's part of what I get at as well is that for a game that, um, like you say, it's not a sequel, it doesn't have a traditional IP. Although some people could say, you know, zombies is could almost think of as an IP, but it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't tap into any pre-existing series of games, um, and in a way, I don't know, I mean, I'd heard of the game before it came out, and uh, the person there who does your PR, when she contacted me, I certainly knew of you guys, uh, but I never got the sense that there was a big marketing push or that even necessarily Microsoft was hugely behind you guys, even though they're your publisher, even though I was elated to see uh, – so, uh, I forgot who it was, but someone at the E3 presentation for Microsoft was wearing a State of Decay t-shirt. I mean, they're obviously very happy with you guys now, but I don't yeah. really think of State of Decay as a game that they were pushing that hard. So I guess part of it is for me, the surprise is kind of from out of nowhere, you guys are hugely successful – um, and that must be really gratifying for, for you guys as, as well. Um,
1: uh, yeah, that part in particular is pretty gratifying. i, I got to say, though, Microsoft's been a great partner for us to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, it really let us make the game that we wanted to make, which is a, a really big deal um, for a lot of people to have, to, excuse me, uh, developer-publisher relationships. Some guys do not have the luxury to make the game that they want to make, um, and they really let us make the, the game that we want to make with, you know, not a lot of, like, coming in and, like, oh, no, no, what you should really do is this. A lot of the, our, pretty much all of our interactions with Microsoft were um, them helping us to make a better game. Um, you know, they were really supportive at trade shows. Uh, both of uh, I think both of the pack shows, since we kind of announced the game, we had uh, a decent presence in their booths. But, yeah, we didn't get, like, a massive marketing push. We don't have TV commercials or anything like that. Um, it's kind of been a grassroots word of mouth as people have these experiences and think, oh this game's pretty cool they tell their buddies uh stories about you know their experiences in the game and that convinces them to try the demo and the demo seems to be pretty convincing mm-hmm. well, let, to- let,
0: so. <laughs> let, let's talk about so you mentioned the game you want to make and microsoft being supportive of that uh, let's talk about uh how that came to be um, and how closely State of Decay right now resembles your y'all's original uh, vision. Um, what is In what ways did the design for State of Decay change over the course of it being made?
1: So the original, you know, the original, uh, when we sat down with Microsoft and said, hey, we w- we've got this game uh, that we want to make, uh, we pitched Kind of multiple variations on how um, how it can be structured. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing we pitched was a game called Class 4, which is the full-on MMO um, experience, zombie apocalypse, multiple players, um, survival scenario, what are you going to do, how are you going to interact with other people, what do the zombies bring to the equation, how are you going to survive, how are you going to rebuild um, civilization after the apocalypse. And um, and that was a big, a big, big game. And the, you know, upfront, it would have been a, a much bigger deal for them in terms of a financial risk. Um, for us, it would have been a, a bigger deal in terms of what our studio was fighting off. Um, so one of the other pitches was that we would do a, um, class three, a setup for this class four game. And that would be a, uh, smaller in scope. It would be a contained experience designed for, um Small scale multiplayer, but not massively multiplayer, um, and kind of still have a lot of that survival scenario, and be a setup for the big the big picture uh, for uh, what we had envisioned for Class Four. Mm-hmm. Um, over the course of developing Class Three, um, you know, production resources being what they are, we had to make some really hard choices in terms of um, having the multiplayer and the, n- the number, you know, kind of dwindled. Like our original vision was, or can we have like 16 players. Okay. Well, okay. So let's talk about maybe like, maybe it's eight and maybe it's four and then maybe it's just two players. And then, you know, there was a, a, a pretty fateful conversation. And this is before we were super deep. We were, you know, not designing, we were designing the game for, um, uh, in a more general way. And as we were doing engine evaluations and doing uh, a lot of front leg work that you have to do to do this kind of development, uh, when, you know, it kind of came down like, look, this is what it's going to mean to to do multiplayer in this game, and the, how the content would suffer. And what we really wanted to do um, was give players a true survival experience. Um, you know, tell a compelling story, get them invested in this world, and then. So the idea for Class Three and what became State of Decay was: can we do a, a single-player survival sandbox game um, where players can? Put into effect their you know their survival scenario plans, and um, and see what this game is going to be like and what our vision is for it, and then move forward into class four. And mm-hmm. so that Microsoft said, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's do the smaller scope game, and uh, and that's where we ended up. Um, now, oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, I don't know if I fully answered your question. You know, some of the stuff uh, in terms of w- what changed from the beginning. Um, and and where we ended up uh, you know it was in the very beginning it was way more sandboxy um in terms of uh you know how you can select your base from uh several base opportunities on the map right now mm-hmm. um originally you know how you can go into every house and you can search every house we were like well yeah you can set up wherever you want and then uh and then over time that became, uh, maybe we should limit them, to, you know, limit the, the play structure just because of the, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with the, the home areas in terms of facilities and other things. Limit them to specific locations on the map that look like they're a bit more survivable than your average, uh, uh, white picket fence house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's another big one, another big change that I remember from three years ago.
0: Well, let, let's get the co-op. Uh, now that the, the sort of the co-op horse is out of the barn, let's talk briefly about that. Um, you guys just announced this morning, and you and I spoke a little bit before we recorded, uh, about uh, another recent decision made internally there at Undead Labs. Uh, part of the thinking was that, you know what, we, we let co-op go by the wayside uh, in order to get this out, and later on we could, we could patch it in. We could restore the co-op. So you just recently decided that that's not going to be something that you're going to be able to do. Um, tell me a little bit about that decision. Uh, what went into this morning's announcement?
1: So, um, after, uh, the release of the project and after the game came out and it was doing really well, um, you know, obviously Microsoft is happy that it's doing really well. And, uh, we started talking with them pretty much immediately, um, about the future, uh, of the, of the IP, the future of the game. Um, and what, um, what we would be able to do. Um, so multiplayer, obviously, the call of multiplayer is one of the big things that, that people uh, request. If you go on our forums, if you go on Reddit and other, other places, people are, you know, it's the number one requested thing. This would be so much better if we could do it with just one other person. So we sat down and talked about uh, the realities of uh, different approaches we could take for um, DLC for the project and kind of developing State of Decay, you know, the game that's out right now. Um, to be sort of its best uh version um, and one of the things that came up is like we have a lot of different ideas for what we could do for um, DLC in terms of sandbox survivor scenarios and other uh cool gameplay hooks that we can add to the game and enhance it but when we would talk about multiplayer um, it was it's going to be a it would be a significant uh technical undertaking for the studio to engage in. And like I said at the beginning, you know, this is 25 guys we're talking about. We'd be taking down uh, half or more of our studio in order to support um, this for nine months. And that's time in which we wouldn't be making other DLC. It's time in which we wouldn't be working on uh other things, uh, potential future, uh, uh, stuff, uh, that I can't get too into right now, but it basically limited what the studio was going to be able to do. And when you we look at the reality of, of how long it was going to take and the lifespan of this game, um, you know, a lot of people clamoring for it now, you know, if we could drop it in by this weekend, they'd be. Crazy. <laughs> but yeah, can you, you guys just,
0: uh, just sit down, just maybe stay late after work tonight? Uh, and just hammer it out for the 4th of July weekend. Can you guys do that for me, Foggy? I'll just the have
1: the flip the switch, because it's just a We haven't flipped it yet. Uh, right there well, in the editor. Uh, the
0: the but, thing is, as I mentioned to you, though, one, one of the things that I really admire about State of Decay, and I have a list here. I was thinking, okay, when I sit down and talk to Foggy, here's the things I want to talk about. And so I just started making a list of the and I hate this word because it sounds so dispassionate and technical, but I started making a list of the systems in yeah. the game. Um, and when I when I heard that, okay, you guys have, have decided the, the co-op is a little bit too big of a bear to tackle at this point, you know, I look at this list of systems, and it, uh, part of the beauty of the systems is how they almost, every single one of them interacts with every single other one of them. Okay. It's a really intricate network of systems, okay. and adding co-op would... You know, if you break one of these systems, you break all of them. Adding co-op would, would break or at least bend to the extreme, you, you know, half or two-thirds of these systems. Um, right. And I can only imagine what a difficult decision that must have been because I know you guys probably feel the same way. You know, I'm, State of Decay, is it, it's a great it's a, You know, playing State of decay is, a, as decay is a fantastic experience, therefore playing it with a buddy would be twice as fantastic. I'm right. sure you guys understand that sentiment, but I just can't help but look at the what I admire about the design and really appreciate there is no way that you guys could easily adapt this to co-op.
1: No, and, and you know, that was the thing, is uh, could we make this a great experience uh, that we as a studio could be proud of? Um, you know, could we... Could could we keep the fundamental core, the heart of the game, intact um, and make this thing in a reasonable uh, amount of time? Because, right, uh, the point I was trying to make earlier is if this takes us, you know, nine months to a year to get done, you know, we're talking about – now we're talking about a game that's on a last-gen system while everybody else is running around playing (laughs) Destiny and Titanfall and all this other stuff, right? And Like, oh, they released some DLC that they want me to pay for on this game that I was (laughs) done with a year ago? Uh, Yeah. Let me, let me get back to you. So, but, but yeah, like, the, the, we would have had to make some serious trade offs in terms of those systems that you're talking about, and we can get into those in more depth soon, I imagine. Um, and, and the way the world is built and the way the world is structured, we were talking about things like, well, would, if we did this, would we have to tether the players together because right. we're not running simulations? You know, this, it's a really big sandbox world, and if the players decide to peel off from each other and go in completely different directions, What do we do? Because we're, you know, the game currently doesn't do simulation in this part of the world. The player happens to be over here. It only, you know, simulates a certain distance out. Um, So, yeah, it was, it it, it got to the point where it's like, we cannot make this experience uh, worthwhile in a meaningful, in a uh, a reasonable amount of time. It would be much better to put those resources towards making content that the fans of our game will really love and towards potentially putting that energy into into future endeavors.
0: Now, I don't know, I know you you can't talk too much officially about this, but is part of the line, uh, in terms of breaking it to players that you're not doing co-op, is part of what you tell them that Class 4 is still a thing? Like, is Class 4 something that Undead Labs is still working on, or did that go by the wayside when uh, you devoted yourselves to Class 3, which became State of Decay?
1: I can tell you that the the concept is something we're still extremely passionate about, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, and that it's it's kind of there's stuff happening. We're talking with Microsoft, Microsoft talking with us. They're pretty you know excited about what's going on with the IP. But you know, we there's nothing set in stone. There's nothing there's nothing even set in sand uh, in terms of being able to say yeah there's there's that's going to definitely happen. Um, okay. It's all just kind of. It's all just kind of like, hey, things are going good. Yeah, let's talk about the future right now. Right.
0: By the way, I can't help you but think there's something um, almost charmingly uh, first-time developer naive about this idea that, you know, Class 4 is a little too ambitious. Let's start with something quote-unquote smaller, Class (laughs) 3, because when I play State of Decay, one of the last things I think is, oh, this is a first-time studio smaller project before they do a big one. like the 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 apocryphal story behind the Wachowski brothers doing the matrix is that they wanted to do the matrix from the get go but nobody was going to trust them with that kind of money so they did a movie called bound which is yeah. a very small three character drama i think it's like in one or two locations and you right. watch bound and you're like yeah this is a small project that led to the matrix i don't play state of decay and think this is you guys bound uh, so, so i could there's something charmingly charmingly naive about this idea that state of decay is a smaller first project that you do to get off the ground because it's so ambitious in so many ways i mean i can only imagine what a headache this must have been at certain times of the process Um, (laughs) because it's really for for to get this off of xbox live arcade i mean for, for something that's not like a big retail release uh this is this is enormous and i've sunk so many hours into it uh so you guys are really silly for thinking that this is in any way <laughs> like a, <laughs> a small first-time project. Uh, so uh, let's talk about some of the the systems. Um, yeah. And first, the, the actual engine itself, like the, the game engine, the graphics engine, this is you guys', right? Like you made your own
1: engine for this game? No, we did not. Oh, um, you did not? Okay. This is, uh, is Crytek. This is CryEngine 3.
0: Ah, Okay. Uh, was there ever? Oh, that well, that makes a, a lot more sense. That there's only 25 of you. Then you didn't have to have an, an engine staff. Okay. Staff. Yeah. Uh, okay. So working with the Crytek engine, then you you the various systems that you put into it. I don't even know where to begin. Here, let me let me throw this at you, Foggy. Okay. What was the most difficult system to get done? What system? Uh, and when we talk about systems, that can mean you know like stealth or scavenging or the base building or the character skills, whatever. What system gave you guys the biggest headache?
1: Uh probably at the end there, the thing that gave us the biggest headache was um, uh getting the, the missions all squared away. Um, we had a lot of um, we had a lot of structure that was a little bit more freeform in terms of the, the way that missions were given. Um, and we would end up with blockers, these situational blockers where you couldn't complete the game because uh because a butterfly flapped its wings and he came Literally <laughs> It's kind of that complex, and so we had to do a lot of stuff uh, near the end there to get the missions kind of all squared away because they're procedurally uh, populated in the world. You know, dynamically, it's not like we precede the world with a bunch of missions. A lot of that stuff is really situational. Like, what are um, you know, looking at the world state, looking at the state of your characters, looking at the state of the, the you know your community and the, the survivors that you have there. Their different personalities, all this different stuff kind of factors into uh whether or not you get one of those missions where you have to take somebody out for a little talk um and there were a lot of cases uh where uh something would kind of get boobard and we would have to go in and do a lot of pretty intense debugging to figure out okay well what is what is um what is the domino that got tipped way back here that that ended up making our house of cards fall down um so that was probably one of the bigger headaches that we had um was getting getting that stable enough that you can complete the game um, consistently? That, that you know you never well, hopefully never felt like you were being blocked on uh, forward progress in the game. Mm-hmm.
0: Let, let's talk then about those characters because um, you mentioned to me before, and I think this is obvious to anyone who's played it. Uh, one of the inspirations for this game was uh, a game that's sort of been percolating for a while. It came out, I think it was on Flash. It came out on the iOS, and that's where I discovered it. A woman named Sarah Northway made a game called Rebuild um, that has a similar... It, it's a strategy game. It's turn-based. Uh, it's a lot of mathy stuff. You know, it's not trying to do the immersive, visceral, first-person stuff that you guys do, but it has this similar conceit of trying to create a base, manage survivors, um... There's a lot of strategy in Rebuild, but what Rebuild and you guys, what what I see most in common there is that both games have an open-world sandboxy vibe, but they also fold in what feel like story modules, Mm -hmm. where I am not sure, you know, I've played Rebuild several times through. I've only had one playthrough with State of Decay, so in Rebuild, I can see as I play over time, oh, this is a story module, this is something emergent. And because it's a strategy game, it's a little bit more – it's a little easier to tell. With you guys' game, I I think I have a sense for what are the quote-unquote scripted story beats and what's emergent. But even then, I'm a little confused, and I think that's a good thing. Um, So I want to talk about this because it it seems like one of the the struggles, too, I mean when you talk about this system of getting the story beats in – I'm constantly amazed at who can die, for instance, and I feel like it's such a hugely important part of horror in general, but a zombie apocalypse, you know, zombie mythology in particular, this idea that the lead character can die. Uh, oh, yeah. So I, I started, you know, you start off with Marcus and Ed, uh, and then Maya comes into the picture pretty early on. So I started off thinking, okay, this is a game about Marcus, Ed, and Maya. Right. <laughs> I, I, I have lost <laughs> – only one of the... Actually, two of them are still here, but but I'm, I'm, I'm now keenly aware that I'm pretty sure all three of those characters can die. You have made yeah. a game where you introduce lead characters, and you're going to let me lose them.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and go ahead. Yep. I, I wish we had been able to do even more of that.
0: Because I do get the sense that there are characters, and it's only because I was so surprised at that, that I think now I see a few characters that I'm not allowed to get killed, because right. you guys have other plans for them. And you guys, it's almost like you guys want to kill them yourselves. So I'm not allowed to kill them. Uh, So it's, it's not, uh, so, so there's this, this hugely emergent element to it where I create my own narrative, but I can see a few places where you guys are sort of guarding the narrative you want to make. And it's, it's mostly discreet. Like, I don't think it's too obvious. It certainly doesn't impact my enjoyment, but then I see also things that I wonder well, if my friends play, will they see this? Like when, or when I play through again, which I definitely intend to do, will it happen this way? So, yeah. let me just throw a few of those out there at you. At you, and, and uh, so, for instance, uh, I think of like the Becca Alex reveal. Uh, I think of how people talk about in the game world uh, the Wilkersons, right. um, the fate of, for instance, and some of these I don't want to spoil. There's a character named I think Alan Gunderson who. Uh, makes a pretty strong impression early on. Um, I get the sense that some of these don't always happen and some of them do always happen. Can you talk a bit about the overall structure there?
1: Um, mostly that you're, you're right in, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil anything either in terms of um, there are definitely um, multiple outcomes that can occur from some of those scenarios that you were describing or the, the story beats that you were talking about. Sometimes, sometimes they don't even happen at all. Um, depending on the player's involvement um, sometimes the story um, the the main story thread will take you through um, to at least introduce you to these people Um, but at some points you can um, depending on which ones some of them are important kind of for the main core thread and you have to end up keep going back to them but in some cases if you decide to to leave them alone and ignore them um, they kind of have their simulation run in some cases their enclaves uh stick around for longer some cases they fail um and uh kind of juggling those dynamic moments uh is kind of based on it's based on the player choices i will say that like what you choose to do has an effect on the outcome of those things um whether or not you're maintaining contact with them on a regular basis if they ask you to do something for them do you do it um, some of your choices have an influence on, on the way some of those things turn out. Some of them are fixed. Some of them are, you know, the, result, the end result is going to be the same regardless. Okay. Um, but they're, they're definitely, the intent is for um, when those story beats that are revealed come online, that, that the player can, um, in most cases, choose to interact with them or not, um, and that there are multiple outcomes based on your involvement.
0: Are those mostly tied into when I when I meet a group of survivors? There's that trust bar, of course, and everybody sees that, and they're like, "Oh, I want to fill that up." You know, I I want. It's almost like an experience point bar. I see a bar; it's got a little ways to go. Naturally, as a gamer, I want to make sure that gets filled up. and, and is that pretty much uh, what drives the story beats? Like you wait for a mission from one of the survivors, you do the mission, it fills up the trust bar a little bit more, and when it fills all the way, I presume some of them join you. Um, is that
1: roughly the structure going on? For the procedural enclave, that's absolutely you know, more or less the structure. You, you'll, you'll contact one of these guys, and this is you know some of the guys you called out earlier, the, the Becca and Quentin at the Grange. You know, that's kind of a specific story uh, enclave that has a a purpose in the overall story arc for the game. Um, but uh, a lot of the enclaves that we generate are, you know, procedural and you'll go there and you'll run missions with those guys and you're building up. And when you hit kind of that tipping point, they'll say, Hey, you know, we're not feeling too safe out here. Or, you know, we really like a cut of your jib and we would like to, to join up with you guys. Um, uh, in terms of whether or not the trust level controls the story beats, that's, uh, that's not totally it. There's a lot of simulation factors kind of playing into that, and some of them have to do with where you're at in the story. Some of them have to do with um, uh, character interactions. Sometimes you're going to get the story beat, but it might play out differently depending on the character that you're using uh, pretty early on in the game. Uh, there's a character that shows up um, in the military, and people they kind of call it out, and, and somebody even says like, I forget if it's a tooltip that says it or if somebody actually calls it out. Like, it maybe it may work out a little bit differently if you show up with somebody with some mil- military experience, and that's actually true. If you've got a character that you have that's playable and they have military experience, it plays out differently than uh, if you go there with just some normal Joe.
0: Holy cats, Foggy! I had no. I mean, I do remember that tooltip. And that completely went by the wayside. Like it, it, it did not even occur to me, but that makes perfect sense that I, who I'm using at certain points is a cool way to sort of make things work out differently. Like I tend to use whoever's best rested or whoever skill I need to get up. Um, but, uh, I noticed, for instance, and let's talk about the character systems now. You know, you have the skills that we can raise, but there are also attributes and some of them are portrayed as skills for different characters. Um, that determine, like, their leadership. And a lot of them look like jokes, but if you click on them, the tooltip might say – like, for instance, one of them, I just found a smoker. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. It, yeah, I think this, this skill is, like, two packs a day or something. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cute. It's kind of like one of the characters likes reality TV, whatever. They're just having a laugh. But then what I noticed also, if I highlight it, it points out that his stamina – or not his stam his cardio increases more slowly. Um, right. So I, I, you guys seem to be taking all these opportunities to, to make these details affect the gameplay systems, and some of them are just really subtle and insidiously clever. So it never occurred to me that you might affect the outcome based on what character I'm playing at a certain time.
1: Uh, yeah. Very sneaky. Very well, we weren't trying to be super sneaky, but, but yeah, want, you know, wanting the characters to be important was, was kind of the drive there. We want you to be attached to these guys. Um, you know, because we don't know, you know, Like you said, we'll, we'll kill just about anybody in the game, and you end up with a playable character um, that you don't have a lot of experience with. We want you to be able to grow attached to these guys fairly quickly, and a big part of um, our original design goals with how the characters are generated was to get a human factor in there to make these people believable with kind of good traits and bad traits. Um, we had systems. Uh, that we cut that involved, um, you know, having to get rid of somebody's baggage. There's a little bit of that in the missions that we were talking about, where you kind of take somebody out to have a chat to kind of get them from being so surly. But like certain points, it's like you, we, we would enter. You know, we had ideas for like you would have a character that was a, a coward or somebody that had um, a real big chip on their shoulder. And you would have to uh, run a mission with them and, and kind of help them get rid of this negative personality trait that would affect them as a playable character in, uh, and in hopefully horrible ways, uh, enough to motivate you to change it. But that, but that getting rid of that or or, or working on that would help you invest in the character and make them feel like a real person so that when they get torn apart, you actually felt something when, when that character died. Um, and that's easiest with the characters that we have at the beginning with Maya Marcus and Ed, people go grow attached to them fairly quickly Um, it's a little bit harder when we're uh, rolling a character together. And and so injecting that personality and having it affect gameplay was, I think a a really important part of uh, helping you to connect to them as another human being.
0: Now, as far as doing this, I I imagine one of the biggest nightmares, uh, and maybe you weren't involved with this part, but uh, I can't help but play the game and think, man, that must have been really difficult. Uh, because you never know which character a player is going to be playing in which circumstance, um, you guys must have bitten off a lot more than you expected to chew in terms of voiceover work. Because every character has to
1: pretty much say everything, right? Right. So um, you've played the game through once. You'll play through uh, hopefully a a bunch more. Um, We we cheated a little bit um, in some places, uh, you know, we're a small studio, we're indie, we don't have a massive budget. I'm going to let you in behind the curtain a little bit here, and I hope it doesn't uh, spoil your experience at all. Um, but a lot of our voice actors played multiple characters. Um,
0: so <laughs> but you, without we're, changing their voice or trying to do their voices
1: differently? They would, they would change the voice, or in some cases, um, you know, especially for the characters that are all playable, you know, they all dialogue. Um, you'll hear a guy that hey, that guy sounds a little like Marcus, but a little bit higher pitched or a little bit lower pitched. We would we literally would pitch shift the lines. <laughs> don't sound like the exact same guy, but it's clear you know this is the same voice actor It has the same inflection in all the right places. But it's like, but he sounds a little like Marcus going through puberty uh, because his voice is higher, um, and and we just end up in these really f- funny to me uh, scenarios where you've got a character that I know the same voice actor played both character kind of talking to themselves and uh, being mad at themselves, giving themselves a talking to, it's uh, pretty hilarious.
0: Uh, That that is awesome. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk a bit about the character skill system then because uh, that's one thing that – I I don't know that there's a lot of – you know, you guys roll out the tutorial stuff early on, and it's been so long since I was at that level. But I remember having to discover a lot of the character build stuff on my own, and it's pretty self-explanatory as you go through it. Um, But there was never a tutorial moment that said, hey, you've hit level four. Now go through and and choose this character's, you know, fighting – unique fighting ability. but. If you take melee, you can't then take a gun special ability, and then right. once you've got this, so there's this, and, and I, I appreciate this from a narrative perspective, from a gameplay perspective, I'm almost like, you know, with my hands on my hips going, well, they should have told me about that sooner, but there's this sense that as your characters get more powerful, you kind of learn the the, the character skill system by, by navigating it for the first time, by going, right. oh, okay, now my character is strong enough to do this, and then later you realize oh, but now this character, I might want to save this skill and make her my gun person, or, right. oh, I've only got one slot. Um, is that is that intentional? Uh, do you want the players to kind of discover this as they choose skills? Um, tell me about the evolution of this cool skill system you have, which has a lot of mutually exclusive choices in it.
1: Right. So initially, I mean, it's ne- it wasn't really our goal that we wouldn't, at least tell players, hey, this cool thing is there, because <laughs> we put a lot of effort into the system, and we didn't want to obfuscate it, but um, you know, one of the things that we we don't do an amazing job of, um, and some of this is intentional and some of this is not, is is kind of teaching players about the systems, and in some cases it's because we didn't want to, we want there to be um, a, a, a depth to the game that players who invest heavily in it um, are able to uh, achieve and appreciate um that you know a normal guy who just kind of dabbles at the game thinks it's pretty cool um and then have his friend tell him oh no you have no idea let's let's <laughs> dig into these things um you know much of the ways that games like dark souls do i have friends that come up to me because i'm a bit of a dabbler in dark souls and they'll, they'll explain oh no see this stat does this and this stat does this and there's all this huge intricate story that they're telling the world but they tell it there are the descriptions and the items and this other stuff. And I'm just like, Oh man, I, I would have had no idea if you didn't tell me, I wouldn't have dug <laughs> in that way. Um, but specifically on the skills, um, this again was one of our goals for creating unique individuals for players to get attached to so that they had, um, some meaning to the player in terms of, you know, the family of characters that they have playable and their community. And, um, so having the, uh, the combination of skills kind of, so, we have the the different skills that you can that you can increase cardio and um, your fighting skill and your shooting skill and um, your wit skill, which kind of all play into different aspects of the, the other gameplay systems. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and then as you progress through those, we have um, special abilities that you can kind of unlock. You go through and, and uh, pick one, but you, you essentially you pick one that becomes the thing for this character. And the original goal for that uh, to be totally blunt about it was to get a feel similar to what they have in XCOM, which is this guy is this guy. This is what he is. He is my sniper. Um, and to have you make choices um, for that character's progression that made it significant for you um, to have him in your party, to have him in your group, to have him be a playable character. Um, and then if they do die, you've lost something significant. You've lost something that you've built up. And it's not something where you can just, Uh, go over to another character and swap some stuff around, and they're suddenly equivalent to each other.
0: Mm -hmm. And what it also becomes, Foggy, and I imagine you guys are keenly aware of this, is once you do appreciate the skill system, and once you see, oh, I can see at what threshold different things are unlocked, uh, I start thinking about the future of specific characters. These characters are no longer just bundles of stats. They are prospective skills that I'm about to unlock. And I start doing specific things for specific characters to reach specific goals. And one of my favorite instances of this foggy, and I don't know if you guys have seen this before, I can't imagine I'm the only one to do this. There's a character who I will take jogging. Right. I will, as a mission, my mission is not, you know, go to the house and get food, work on your shooting skill. My mission is to run, to go yeah. out and run, and I'll listen, you know, you guys are very sort of, uh, At times, I think you're a little bit too coy about playing music, because, and I want to talk about this, too. uh, The the soundtrack that Jasper Kidd did for you guys is is at times sublime. Uh, So because you don't always play it when I want you to play it, because I'd like to hear it more sometimes, (laughs) I will take my iPad, and I will play a track, and I will choose this character whose cardio I'm trying to max out, and I will run laps. Around, I mean, I'm, I'm down, you know, my main base ended up being in Marshall. I'll run laps around Marshall just to improve that character's listening to music while my character is jogging. And I don't think I've ever done that in a game. I remember in, I think, GTA, you could have, uh, in one of the Grand Theft Autos, you could have the guy lift weights or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, it was just a quick little mini game. This is me, as my mission, taking a character jogging. Uh, <laughs> and it's because... And it's because you've done this skill system. It's just like I would run. I pick the song I'm going to listen to on my iPod, and I go yeah. running in the neighborhood. So uh, you, yeah. So sorry, go ahead. So I, I just find it just amazing that you've recreated this in uh, in state of decay.
1: <laughs> um, you know that that one in particular, that that skill, and its marriage to basically everything else, cardio. You know, this is something that was in Zombieland. We named it very specifically after you know rule number one in Zombieland is cardio. <laughs> um, but our stamina system was, you know, really important, the structure of the stamina system. The bonuses you get there make probably the biggest difference in an individual character's performance out in the world in, in terms of the minute-to-minute gameplay, um, unless you're driving. Uh, you know, it affects how, you know, how long you can be in combat before you have to peel off and run away. But yeah, I do the same thing that you do uh, without setting my iPad to the, the music because usually I'm playing with... Uh, Usually I'm playing my dev setup and I got headphones on, but if I have to test something like the, the tuning for how quickly that skill goes up or how quickly the stamina drains and stuff like that, I will literally <laughs> go raid a store for a bunch of snacks and then <laughs> this is sort of, <laughs> it's sort of weird, right? Because the snacks give you the stamina, but if you can imagine going and going for a three mile run, eating 20 in <laughs> that's the right. middle, it'd make a lot of sense, but, but to give you the energy to keep going, but yeah, that's, that's exactly what I do as well i go for jogs.
0: So you touched on this, so let's talk briefly about this, of course. Uh, One of the systems that you guys have that I always, not always, but that I miss so much in certain games, uh, you talked about Defiance, and one of the really cool things about Defiance is that it has this system in it. I always missed this system from the Fallout games, which we're trying to do a post-apocalyptic setting, and I feel this is hugely important in post-apocalypses, but you guys have driving. You have vehicles, you have different kinds of vehicles, uh, you allow me to to do what I would naturally want to do in a zombie game, and that's to get in a car and run down the hordes. Um, I know that the Dead Rising games have struggled mightily with this, and it looks like from the E3 presentation, it's a huge bullet point for them in Dead Rising 3. But right. you guys have really put a driving system into your post-apocalypse. Um, what were some of the struggles and challenges there? And, by the way, was there ever a time where you considered... Uh, maybe we can't do this?
1: Uh, maybe it came up, but it was shot down immediately because, I mean, the what we're trying to sell um, in terms of the overall experience, the experience we're trying to give the gamers is this uh, post-apocalyptic uh, sandbox survival game and that you can kind of live out these fantasies, right? Like, uh, when I was a kid... And I watched, you know, the, the, the stand miniseries and you see the guys kind of traveling across them, or, 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 uh, I am legend and he's just ripping through the streets of New York in this bitchin' car. Um, we didn't, we wanted players to be able to have that experience, right? The sandbox world. If you, and, and it would have been really, really difficult to make a sandbox world set in, you know, some small town in America and have all these cars around and, what would we do, You'd, it would be constant disappointment to walk up to a car and have it not work. Um, because we couldn't have built it and where, where are all the cars would have been like the first thing people ask, um, in this small town of America? America's covering cars. Um, so it never, it never made it off the table. One of the, you know, the challenges are, um, streaming, uh, you know, the tuning of the vehicles is, is heavily dependent on, uh, what our streaming engine is capable of. And in some places, um, and people call us out on this, some places it comes up a little bit short in some of the faster vehicles. Um, setting it up so that those cars feel good. Um, uh, I was going for something a little bit uh, quirky. Uh, I wanted the cars to each have kind of a personality and a feel to them when you drive them. Um, and some people, you know, aren't too fond of how they handle. And some of that's frame rate and some of that's, you know, the handling choices that, uh, that were made in terms of how the individual vehicles work. But, yeah, man, uh, it would have been a tragedy to not have the vehicles in there and to not be able to mow these guys down in a car and get that feeling and have the have the cars come out the other end covered in blood. Uh, That's one of the things I love, too, is, yeah, the,
0: the visual progression of, you know, if I decide I'm going to run down a bunch of the hordes, one of the first times you do that, you might be in one of the more frail cars, and you're yeah. like, oh, geez, I just hit one horde, and now my car is steaming. I better not do this. But you later on find, okay, maybe some of the less sexy cars, they right. can really bear up under running over a lot of the, the hordes. And not only that, but holy cats, look at how awesome this looks when it's all dented and covered in blood. Uh, yeah. looks <laughs> there's like a great that. visual progression. Uh, so... Uh, what uh, so one of the other things about the vehicles is that in the base building, uh, actually, I want to call out one of the, one of the really pleasant discoveries for me. You guys paid so much attention to uh, persistence in a way that a lot of other open world games have, have historic, historically disappointed us and I think of people playing GTA and they get a favorite car and they park it somewhere and they go do a mission and then they're done with the mission and they come back and the car has despawned basically it's gone and you went too far ex- away
1: yeah.
0: exactly you walk too far away and the simulation reset it I think, and maybe this is just my imagination, but I think there have been times that i 've left a car by the side of the road and i 've been driven and i 've been driving by a few days later and it 's still there and yeah. certainly, even if that 's not the case, even if that 's my imagination i 'm keenly aware that you guys are very careful about making sure if I drive a car up somewhere and do a bunch of crazy stuff and even get a, a, a bit of a ways away when I come back, that car is still there. Yeah. Um,
1: Cars in particular are amazingly persistent. They are also like the Buffalo and Red Dead Redemption uh, they, they're they're that level of persistent if you if you destroy a car it's gone and there's only so many in the world
0: <laughs> Well that's there's a list of them, isn't there like I don't is that just a list of things around my
1: base but I, I can look at a list of at this crazy it's list called, of cars that you know about yeah you can and, and in their locations will show up on the map yeah.
0: Uh, and so that, that is finite then, of course, like there's
1: uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, so interesting conversation because you think about the design ramifications of that. And there was a little bit of back and forth, but eventually we settled on. Oh, yeah, let's do it. That is the more, you know, it fits with uh, our, our permadeath concepts. And when you're you know, having these lead characters go ahead and just die, having the cars feel the same way uh, felt like a really natural fit after we kind of slotted that system in.
0: Mm uh, Tell me about how to make sure that cars and I think I know the answer to this because I've discovered it. How to make sure that cars aren't just an easy invulnerability to zombies.
1: Uh, you know, in some cases they work out really well. And in other cases, you can't get them quite to where you need to go. Um, some of the smaller ones definitely take more damage damage. Um, uh, I do not recommend uh, hitting a Juggernaut with a car, if you think the car is <laughs> um, because you will lose your favoritist car that way. Um. <laughs> uh, and I believe they can rip the doors off, right? Like you can. Oh, yeah. it, uh, it seems
0: well, like a car is basically a, a bit of armor, but the zombies can strip it away. And if you've got a car missing a door, it's going to be that much easier for the zombie to pull you out, right?
1: Oh yeah, if you've got a car missing one of the front two doors, I it's it's kinda gone unless there's no zombies around, I would not recommend driving a car around with no door on it. And then, and then that, the that car will wreck those doors. And then that of course ties into wanting the
0: upgraded workshop, which can right. fix not just the tires and the I guess it's a steaming radiator or whatever, but there's a point where a workshop will actually repair your your cars yeah. uh, a certain up. amount of damage. Right? Yep. What then? By the way, so uh, let, let's talk a bit about the base building. The base building, a lot of times, is gated by finding a particular survivor skill. Right. Um, how much are you guys spoon feeding me the right skills for the right base upgrades, and how much do I need to wait on just the random number generator? What, what's going on there?
1: Oh gosh, um, I don't think we're spoon feeding it at you at all. I think it is totally random <laughs> in terms of uh, like if you have an upgraded kitchen and you want to put a chef there, um, I do think that we, we do look at, I might be totally wrong about this, but I think we look at, um, the current mix of, um, your survivors when seating some of the procedural enclaves Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not just loading you up with all the same guy. We want to make sure there's a mix of characters that, that you have uh, available. Um, but I don't think we do anything in particular like if if you were to go and build a specific um, facility and and know that that needs uh, a guy with a particular trait, I don't think we go, oh, well, he's built that facility. He hasn't populated it. We know we need this guy with this trait, so let's put one out there for him. I don't think we do that.
0: Uh, let's talk a bit also about the um, – so at some point, I presume, in the development, you are like, well, we need some kind of an economy. Uh, and the economy here is influence. Right. Um, it seems like fame, I believe, is the tie, is the cap on influence you can get in any given day. Uh, influence is something that I, I get the sense of... Actually, I don't get the sense, and it's what I love about it. In a normal action RPG, I uh, pick up gold, and I can also make more gold by selling all my useless loot to the vendor. And then sometimes I'll spend that gold to buy loot from the vendor. Um, here, the influence... There's this sense of, okay, in order for me to have enough influence to give this really cool gun to one of the the characters who I need to train up, uh, I need to go out and scavenge stuff and drop it into the supply. Like, I need to do something for the community before the community does something for me. And it's the same with going to the other survivors. Like, if I want to be able to grab all their snacks out of their supply, you know, I want to make sure to have the influence. Uh, right. Tell me how the uh, influence model evolved, Um, and was it something that you knew early on? Was there a eureka moment with that?
1: You know, like, if you look, looking back at, like, our original pitch for uh, the game, I think our original currency was going to be bullets. Um, Like, like, literally, these things are incredibly valuable, and then we we were kind of still in the the talking phases of that, and we were like, it would feel a little bit weird every time you got into a firefight. You have to kind of choose, like, do I want to shoot this gun right now, or are those five bullets worth one grenade, or are those five bullets worth, you know, a car later on, or something like that?
0: Well, Foggy, do you know what game does that and what I think kind of suffers from it? Because I hate having to think about that when I shoot. Do you know what shooter does that?
1: Is it Metro or Stalker? Nope,
0: Metro. Metro absolutely does that. Your, your ammo is your currency, and you can either choose to use good bullets, which are money, or you can yeah. use crappy bullets. And I, they, they led up on it a lot in the last Metro game, but it was uh-huh. a huge part of the original Metro. Um, and it definitely did color the experience of shooting a, a gun. So I can imagine if this had been in State of Decay, I, you guys would have basically, for all intents and purposes, made a melee game.
1: <laughs> well, we didn't want that to be the, the choice that you were thinking about when you were deciding whether or not to pull out your gun and use it. We wanted – obviously, we have other systems that play into to sound and attracting zombies that we wanted to be the real thing, like are you using an unsilenced gun or not? Um, and then, you know, we money, – money made no sense in the context uh, of this world. I mean, we're not that long after the apocalypse, but it still didn't kind of feel right for these people to be like, yeah, well, you need to give me a 100 bucks – Before I'll give you this, so kind of we, you know, it evolved a little bit from the necessity of creating a system that didn't rely on um, traditional currency model. Um, We also wanted it to not be um, something that you had to kind of like find and carry. We wanted the system to be a bit more abstract, and the goal of the abstraction is, you've indicated, and, and the people that you know really are keen on the system have also identified was to create something that felt like. Your value to your community um, was reflected back in terms of what they would um, sort of give to you, and what you had access to from these uh, these community chests, and that that influence and that kind of the the fame that that uh, affects that was something that would be have sort of an area effect that the enclaves that you would encounter would be like, Oh, you're that guy. And so the abstraction was to try to achieve that, that feel like you are an important member of this community. That means that you can take the really cool guns. Um, you've done a lot, you continue to do a lot. So you have a lot of say over, uh, kind of how we evolve and do things as a community.
0: I also really like Foggy how, uh, in terms of gun play, um, The influence isn't so much the factor, because basically I'm pretty sure all bullets are one influence per bullet. Um, But there's this sense of creating, with your your safe house and the outposts that you have, how much ammo you're going to regenerate every day. And therefore, with your influence pool, how much of it you're going to be able to allocate to your different survivors with their different guns. And therefore, what – by the way, that's so much of the – The way the systems work for me in state of decay is here's system A and therefore here's system B and therefore here's system C. There's all these and therefore bits. So one of the and therefore bits of the way influence and ammo works is that I have some characters who are using pistols. You know, there, there's that, that nine millimeter ammo or that goes with Uzi's, but there, there's some ammo that only goes with a pistol and I don't want that just to stock up in my uh, stockpile. You know, someone should be able to use that. So all the different ammo uh, makes me want to use different guns. Um, right. Uh, which I can imagine that that must have been uh,
1: intentional. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. There was a um, there was a guy. You know, it, it's, at different points in the development, um, we had different uh, kind of versions of ammo and how it worked. Uh, one of the models was a, a little bit more like um, Resident Evil style. Where there's kind of a school of guns and it's like, okay, there's shotgun ammo. Shotgun ammo will work in any shotgun. And that's not a great example because shotgun ammo works in any shotgun in our game, but. Uh, <laughs> assault but,
0: rifle ammo, for
1: instance. Right, yeah. And, and the different sizes of assault rifles and those take different bullets. And we're like, yeah, well, assault rifles should just take assault rifle ammo. Um, but one of the guys on the team is very passionate, uh, about, uh, about guns and he pushed really, really hard to, to develop the system so that it was basically built around real-world um, ammo calibers. And, you know, when we plugged it in, it felt like a really good fit for survival, and it played really nicely with the systems exactly the way you're talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: And and here, by the way, is one area where uh, I have to take you guys to task. Um nope. Here it comes. What- what on earth are all those weapon stats in the lower right-hand corner? And how, how am I supposed to know what those symbols mean? Cause there are symbols and then there's some that are, it's a checkbox that I think tells me whether or not it can take a silencer, but then in right. the weight, I understand that, but what I, there, you you have weapon stats and I can't parse them.
1: <laughs> uh, let me, let me see if I can walk you through it real quick. Cause I have to remember, cause I don't have my machine in front of me. Otherwise I'll tell you exactly what they all are and match up to symbols. Um, uh, for the guns, uh, one of them is gonna be accuracy, okay. uh, uh, one of them's gonna be recoil, and I think that's the one that looks like a, the pistol has like a little line up above it, and that's how much the gun kind of, you know, bucks after each shot. Uh, one of them is spread, or spread and accuracy might be the same thing, and I think that only affects weapons that are full auto or not. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Well, maybe
0: there's an indicator for whether or not it can change to full auto, because I know that, and that's actually, I think, in one of the tool tips is how to change between single shot and full auto. Uh-oh. The silencer
1: is one of them as well. Uh, one of them is scope, whether or not the thing has a scope, although that's kind of visualized in the, uh, the icon for the, the specific gun itself. Uh, one is uh, durability, um, which is, the, in the case of the guns, the likelihood it's going to get to the point where it's going to start jamming on you. Oh wait a minute, they do that, oh yeah, oh yeah that, that's a that, unless you're using a revolver we we follow lethal weapon rules on revolvers, nah okay,
0: but and I know the durability like that it has in common with melee weapons, and that's just yeah. when they start to, to break but uh oh okay, good to know, very good to it know
1: a little, it a little bit more interesting on the guns because we don't ever take your guns away from you um <laughs> it's America. Uh, <laughs>
0: That's, that is right, though. They don't break. It doesn't, like, all the other weapons can wear out, and ideally you put it back into the stash so it can get repaired overnight, but there's That's nothing exactly. that destroys weapons, is there?
1: Uh, nothing that destroys guns, yeah. So so especially if you right. find something really sweet, you know, the system doesn't take it away, whereas with a baseball bat, it's like you broke it. It's like, are you going to really repair a bat and expect it to, to bust zombie heads? It's not necessarily a good idea. Just go find another bat. Right. Um, but with guns... <laughs> Uh, once you get it to the point where it's kind of reached its durability limit, it'll jam, and then you can unjam it, but at that point, it's really going to be jam prone until you put it in the, in and get it fixed. So you can get it from red back to yellow, but you can never get it all the way back up until you kind of stash it away and let it get repaired. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, but there is, but yeah, but there is no gun sink, uh, I guess, right? Uh, so the influence model also makes me think of something that, that reminds me a lot of, um, the, the, the recent Saints Row games. And in the Saints Row games, you would eventually, you know, you would make friends and they would give you special powers you could use. Yeah. Uh, so here, and at first I thought, okay, the radio is just to bring someone, is just to just tell someone, hey, I can't carry all this crap, come help me carry this, or we're gonna make an outpost here. But one of the real delights of the game is how that radio menu fleshes out with some really cool new abilities. Oh, and Saints yes. Row, I think it was like a cell phone where you would call right. people and they would come help you or whatever. So you guys use this little radio menu to flesh out really cool abilities, some of which are really big uh, influence sinks. Oh, yeah. um, and because I would never spend all my influence, uh, you know, just taking in guns and putting them out and getting my baseball bats repaired. But once it comes to, you know, calling in artillery strikes on zombie hordes, then right. that's like, okay, this is what I want to use my influence for. Okay. You want
1: to clear an infestation fast?
0: So, by the way, one of my favorite moments, and I don't know if I'm misreading this, but uh, I had snuck up to a building, and I was going to use my new artillery strike, and I'm like, I can't really go in there. I'm afraid to go in there. I don't want to get killed. I know there's a couple screamers in there. So I'm just going to call an artillery strike on this building and maybe yeah. see if it'll kill the zombies. I don't know if it doesn't. Whatever. I'll maybe get a few of the stragglers. So, I think what might have happened, and maybe, Foggy, you can tell me if I'm imagining this. I think I called an artillery strike. It maybe killed a couple of zombies, but I think a bunch of other zombies came running towards the noise. Oh, yeah. So, I basically ended up depopulating – basically, like, I maybe killed three zombies and attracted six. So, so the <laughs> artillery strike on the infestation area, which was in some wooded place, it gave me a net total of plus six zombies. <laughs>
1: Explosions make a lot of noise, Tom.
0: Well, I uh, and I I love that you guys show that on the minimap. I mean, I pay more attention to it now. Anytime I see that little blue line radiate, I'm like, okay, well, that's you know, fair point. You guys are telling me when I'm making noise. Gunshots can do this, cars can do this, car horns can do this. But yeah. I was like, wait,
1: well, that that artillery strike didn't exactly have the desired effect. Fair enough. You, yeah, you got to be careful with those. I mean, if, you got to throw them and run basically because they're gonna they're gonna. They're going to wipe out anything that's there, but anything that's all within hearing range is going to come and run into, and those that make a lot of noise. And, and that,
0: of course, ties into uh, the stealth system. So okay. the zombies uh, respond to, to noise. Um, you do show us on the mini-map how much noise we're making, how far it reaches. Um, I remember a video, I think one of the first times I was aware of State of Decay, you guys had done a video showing something about sneaking into a gas station and now this character is going to throw fireworks and it's going to draw out the zombies. And they're gonna And I remember watching that and thinking, okay, it's a cool idea. It's probably not going to work. It's just going to be some annoying canned stealth thing. But I'll keep an eye on this game. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, and, and sure enough, like I, I love the stealth system. I'm not a big fan of stealth in games, but I love how the stealth involves distractions. It involves, do I really just want to run past these zombies? Do I want to take the time to search this house and risk attracting zombies with the noise? Do I want to bring in one of my experienced scavengers who can scavenge more quietly? Uh, so, tell me about the creation of the stealth system.
1: Uh, that that actually, I wish I'd brought it up earlier, but this is a great place to talk about it in terms of things that were in the original plan for the game that evolved and changed significantly. Um, the original stealth system the stealth system was essentially like a Cover-based shooter game, where you would be able to snap to low walls or cars or things like that, and um, and we had it in and it was working, and you know it was never as good as uh, say the, the cover-based shooting in uh, or the cover-based kind of stealth feel that you get in Gears or Uncharted. We just felt really organic and everything felt really smooth, and we were going to have to put a lot more engineering effort into getting it to feel smooth. And we were talking about it, and it was like, you know, a cover-based system like we're, what we're kind of shooting for right now makes a lot of sense in the context of other human beings shooting back at me. Mm-hmm. But it, it it didn't fit quite right with what was going on with the zombies. It's like, I don't need to snap to these walls. I kind of just need to, you know, duck down and, and be behind them. The next version of the system after sort of the the... the the sort of snap-to-the-wall version, um, involved the bushes that are around. Uh, there's tons of bushes around uh, the towns and stuff like that. But it was like, oh, you can go behind a bush. And you would get near a bush, and you would get this contextual interaction where you'd dive into the bush and kind of be snapped <laughs> to the bush, essentially. Um, and that felt pretty bad as well. You know, we play with it. It looked a little bit silly. And you you could never use it when you wanted to. Right? We have this sandbox world. It's really organic. Um, the zombies are drawn to sound. They're going all over the, pl- the place. And um, and you'd be like, oh, I kind of want to do something stealthy. Where's a bush? Oh, man, the bush is too far away from this guy, so I'm, ne- <laughs> I'm never going to be able to dive into that bush and then do a cool stealth kill out of this bush. So, uh, so then we kind of evolved the system to be, let's make it totally freeform. When you're crouched down like this, they can still see you, but... But not as easily, and we have, you know, some, some systems that make it so that when you crouch down like that, you're harder to spot, which, you know, helps significantly. And then you're also not making as much noise. I mean, you make zero noise when you're stealth and just walking, uh, walking around. Um, and then we kind of evolved it so that, you know, the bushes still kind of have a role. You can, you can hide in the bushes, but it's much more organic. It's much more sandboxy. If you're in a bush, they'll kind of lose sight of you. Um, uh because you're you're hidden and, and zombies have the memory of a goldfish um but uh so yeah it evolved and wanted to be really organic and we wanted to 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 have it connect to the other systems as well which is why um you know you can open doors while you're stealth um as long as they're not locked um you have uh special combat moves while you're stealth if you're able to sneak up on guys um uh, and you can sneak up on guys that are next to houses and they'll slam their heads in the wall. So we kind of got all these little hooks into the stealth system and it, it suddenly felt amazing compared to, uh, you know, sneaking and trying or wanting to sneak and having to use cover, or having to use these context contextual interactions in the environment. One,
0: one of my favorite instances of of how organic the stealth is and the noise system in specific is um, every now and then you get missions that are hey we need a diversion here so I was like well I don't want to go back and pick up firecrackers all right I'll pick up firecrackers whatever so I'll go and I'll pick up firecrackers one of the kitchen timers I'll run and do the mission you know I set the firecrackers throw the firecrackers down get that and then I'm fine so at one point I was like one of those popped up and I didn't have a firecracker thing handy. I didn't want to do it, but there was another mission nearby. So there were kind of these overlapping mission zones, and as I was doing – as I was fighting zombies in that distraction area, my gunshots were filling up the distraction bar. And it it, it naturally, it made perfect sense that this mission just needs me to make noise here rather than you guys forcing me, you know, here's the scripted device that makes noise. Get a kitchen timer, get a talking doll or whatever – Sure, a gun makes noise. That makes perfect sense. So for the distraction, all I had to do was fire a gun a few times. It would bring zombies running, of course, but it, it met the prerequisites for a distraction mission. Uh, yeah. So I loved how organic that was and how I naturally stumbled onto it.
1: And, and like you called out earlier, you know, cars or, you know, we have a, a system that, that not many people use and wasn't as fully realized as we originally intended. But like if you pull the right trigger, you can kind of have your character vocalize. And yeah, what is that?
0: Yeah, he'll say like Psst, over here. It's it's almost like a Metal Gear thing. What's going on there? Uh,
1: it's it's kind of undercooked. Um, we left it in the system. Uh, we left it in the game because there are some some cool things that players can do with it. Um, it it kind of allows them to express themselves a little bit. You can you know jump down on a zombie's head and if it was you know, a crazy fight and you got the end and you killed a juggernaut, you pull that trigger and hit the, the taunt button and Marcus yells, out, fuck you! or something like that which I, I do because I kind of know how all that stuff works um, we had a lot more intention behind that system in terms of your character interacting with other human characters in the game um, and how that would work um, but one of the hooks that it still has for gameplay that's still pretty meaningful is if you press that yell button it it makes noise. You press that yell button a couple times, oh. and it's the equivalent of you creating a distraction, setting down some fireworks. You're just out you're the crazy guy out in the middle of the street yelling, or you know, and Sean of the Dead, and he's like, <laughs> Hey, look at me, soup's on, come and get me, you know, that guy. And you know, it felt really good from a, a zombie connection to the zombie uh, tropes and zombie um, uh, lore to, to have you be able to do something like that and have that function as a distraction as well. But so I like, didn't even have to waste my ammo. For instance, <laughs> I could have just stood
0: there and yelled. That makes perfect sense.
1: And you, you brought up Kojima, and that's you know one of the ways we approach design and think about things in that way. It's like you don't want to one offs are, um, you know, they can have a really high production value and, and, and be a really cool thing. But it, it, again, a small studio sandbox world. It's in our best interest to create systems that that interact with each other in meaningful ways. And so over the course of the project you know, what, you know, people would come up with something, Hey, you know what, this is this, we should, we should connect this and make sure that, that, you know, when you're yelling that makes no noise, Hey, the horn should do this and the horn should do that. And, and kind of connecting all those things together was really important to us to make that experience that sort of the cohesive and to make sure that, um, from a systemic standpoint, we had those interesting, emergent feeling interactions. Mm-hmm.
0: What then is the, when I'm stealthed, when I'm crouched and I'm not near something I can interact with like a door, uh, I think if I hit the Y button, I'll, I'll whisper something. Am I right about that?
1: Uh, yes, uh, oh man. You know what? I think, so I, I put that in, uh, and I didn't tell anybody else about it. And I'm trying to remember if it, if it got fully developed or if I just forgot to take it out. But, but the idea was that no, that and I think I think I got it to the point where it was actually working properly. Um, I didn't just put something in and, and leave it half half finished. But I, I think at some point uh, somebody might have told me to take it out and I didn't. Uh, and is the
0: idea that it just pulls fewer zombies? It's like a it noise makes, in a shorter radius.
1: Yeah, it makes yeah it makes a small amount of noise and it's 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 so you can pull guys. You know, it's so you can be in a bush. And have a guy close and not want to attract the whole house by running out and fighting him and be like, Psst, over here. And the zombie will be attracted to that noise that you make, but he's going to come straight at it. So you kind of then have to have a plan for like, okay, I'm going to pull him in and then I'm going to wait in this bush. And then when he turns back around, then I'm going to stealth kill him or <laughs> I'm going to push my way around to the back and, and kill him. I totally forgot about that. Uh, well then let's, let's.
0: Then talk about the combat, of course, because uh, in a, a great number of animations here. Certainly one of the gratifying bits about discovering new skills is watching the animations with it. Uh, I never get tired of specifically the uh, knee-to-the-head smash animation. Um <laughs> So uh, a lot of it is cool animations, but there's a pretty robust combat system here. As we mentioned earlier, and as I think you guys stay, say in one of the tool tips, it's very stamina based. Yes. Um, I don't think, I, I, I think part of the learning curve in State of Decay, a fundamental part of the game experience that almost anyone will have who plays this game is discovering the hard way that when you run out of stamina, a character will die. Uh, and and it's almost like you're going to have to lose a character this way, like somebody's going to have to get killed this way before you can fully appreciate it. Um, So uh, tell me a bit about the evolutions of the combat system. Uh,
1: That's pretty interesting as well. Uh, First, just kind of talking about um, design philosophy and the connection to, you know, we're we're big fans of uh, zombie mythos and various versions of it, and fast zombies versus slow zombies, and all that stuff kind of plays into it. Um, stamina is, is a critical part kind of when you're watching these movies of somebody getting themselves into a bad situation and we wanted that feeling to be there. We wanted it to feel like your characters sort of in a minute to minute way got tired and then sort of in a big picture way, uh, with our fatigue, um, attrition system that they were wearing down over time. Um, but the minute to minute stamina system, the goal there was, um, you know, you're, these are real people. They're not superhuman. You can develop them and get them into better shape by jogging. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that you're gonna wear down. You're not, um, you're not the typical action game, uh, platformer guy that can just wade into, uh, a horde of, of whatever you're, you're going out to fight and come out of it the, the other side and be ready to take on another one immediately. We wanna get that human element in it. And, uh, so, the, the, most of the evolutions to the combat system kind of were centered around um, really getting that, um, really getting that these are human people um, and that, you know, some of the proposals early on and some of the, the versions of the combat system we had early on were um, a little more kind of combo-y. Like uh, there was a bat combo and we're like, who's in in God's Green Earth, who would swing a bat that way? You, this is how you swing a bat. You swing it left and right. And if you were in this situation trying to kill a zombie, you would not be doing, you know, anything where you twirl the bat up over your head or <laughs> rub it under your leg. Right. You would just swing it like like you were trying to, to kill something. And so we we backed off from any systems that were kind of more complex in terms of, you know, uh light, light heavy and things like that. And we wanted to create again more um sort of functional system, more tools that the players have at their disposal, and interesting choices that they have to make. Uh, the very first version of the system, uh, those context kill moves that you can do, um, like the knee bash, were kind of automatic. Like if you were just hitting uh, the X button over and over and over again, you would like swing the bat, swing the bat, swing the bat, it would put the zombie into a sun state, and then the next time you pressed X you would grab the guy and do it. And, you know, that removed this really strong feeling of agency you want to be sky that does that as a player right and so it looked identical but there's a big difference in terms of kind of how you wire up the controls um in in terms of the feel that that gives to players Um, and then philosophically um thinking about the combat from the perspective of uh the enemies uh not even bringing the freaks into the equation just yet but um when you watch the zombie movies, it's one zombie is not a threat. Two zombies is kind of getting there, but like one zombie is never a problem for somebody to go and take out unless it surprises them. Um, and so we really want to get this feel where you felt like if it was one or two zombies, maybe three, you felt like you could go in there, take them out. And certainly for characters that you've done a little bit of progression work with and, and kind of bump their stats a little bit, you should be able to get in and make short work out of three zombies. But we wanted it to be the case that when you start to get into that four, five, six range, that you really had to question: like, is this a good idea for me to do this? Maybe I should send the herd with a Molotov or shoot a couple of, excuse me, shoot a couple of them on their way in, so that I can get them down to a manageable number. Because you know that your stamina is finite, and when you kind of hit that cap, um, it affects not only your ability to engage in melee combat, it also affects your ability to run. So, like you said, one of the first lessons you have to learn uh, in State of Decay is when to call it on melee and and hoof it.
0: And And it's interesting, you're you're drawing from the same reserve for both activities. Like, you you reach this point where you're like, okay, am I going to keep fighting, or do I need to use this reserve of stamina to, to get some distance from these guys? And that's a tough choice, and... You know, it, 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 are there more zombies coming into the fight? Do I, do I have time to swing and look behind me, uh, to check that it's safe back there? Uh, it's, it's constantly interactive. Right. Um, and I find that very different from other crazy over the top zombie gore games like, like, uh, like Dead Rising, where it's, it's a fun sport and it's kind of goofy and enjoyable and, and silly and over the top. Um, here I'm constantly having to make tough decisions in uh, a game like uh the uh, the Dead Island series the Techland does they did a really good job with creating this visceral sense of beating zombies to death but what they tried to do with stamina i feel didn't really work as well uh, stamina was this weird kicking dynamic and but here i, I feel like you know i got to watch that stamina bar if i'm going to bug out here is the point of no return you know right. after the stamina gets below this point i'm not going to be able to get away i'm just going to have to hope that one of them doesn't lunge at me or that you know, that I have snacks to hold out. Right. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, it also really does, for me, a great job, and this ties back into the, the character system where the characters are, are a resource. Uh, it, it feels so incredibly different using somebody who's developed versus somebody who's not developed. Um, and one, I, I've gotten myself in a trap a few times where I've kind of forgotten who I'm playing. Like I get used to playing my super uber dude, and up oh, he's tired. Let me swap to someone else and do some missions. And I almost forget. Oh wait, this is not a guy. I, I should not have waded into this situation. I'm not playing that other guy. Uh, yeah. But it feels so dramatically different, you know, based on what character I'm using, uh, based on what kind of weapons he's got, based on how experienced he is. Um,
1: and that that. Go ahead. Sorry. And you know that. You know uh that's something that i had to remember when i became a player of this game instead of just a developer as well when i fired it up on the xbox for the first time <laughs> i don't have access to all these uber powers I'm, I'm playing with this normal guy again i can't turn off the zombies
0: yep yep uh the scavenging system also um i uh i it, see i didn't realize this for the longest time and it was an, a eureka moment for me uh you guys even went to the trouble of making certain resources appear in certain places. Like, yeah. for instance, if I need food, I want to look in the kitchen. I mean, it makes sense that I don't want to go to a warehouse to look for food. Of course, I want to go to a house. But now, and I didn't realize this at first, you know, I, I'm liable to find a gun in a bedroom drawer but not a refrigerator. Um, right. <laughs> so. It used to be that I'd walk into a house and it was just, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, three to eight search points, whatever. I naturally go through all of them. But now I get this really cool sense and it's part of the world building. And I really appreciate this, that if I need food, I go to houses and I look in their kitchens. Um, And and that to me is every bit as immersive as that goofy jogging thing I was telling you about, where I set a a song on my iPad and I go jogging. I need food, I go look in kitchens. I want building materials, I look for a warehouse. And and, and even this spotting system that you guys have, yeah. uh, which at first I thought, okay, it's just a throwaway mission. They just want me to know, oh, uh, I can go up here and see things. But now, you know, this spotting thing is important to know what kinds of buildings are in what places. And it augments how easily I can use the map to get around and do what I want to do. Um so scavenging and spotting; those are also two systems. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, how those came to be.
1: So the um, uh, the scouting system was originally uh, we you know we were looking at obviously Assassin's Creed kind of an influence on that one, and you know getting to a high point, marking stuff on the map, and uh, I think originally we kind of just did it automatically, but it just felt a little weird to get up there and just populate. Uh, some sort of fog of war out um, and so wanting it to be something like you, you were up there spotting we also wanted to make it something that you didn't necessarily just do once um, where it was useful for you to um, climb up on one of these things and oh there's a horde over there oh there's um, I've spotted uh, uh, one of the freak zombies off in the distance and to have it kind of fit the abstraction of, of going and scouting and somebody going up there with a pair of binoculars and kind of letting everybody know what was going on because it felt like a really important, uh, element to survival specifically that, um, was something that, you know, is when, when you look at sort of zombie games in general, um, a lot of them are heavily action focused, um, and, um, you're concerned about sort of your personal survival, but the survival doesn't kind of escalate above that and become something that, that has this feeling of persistence or we're building something back up and survival is, Sort of the critical part of this and, uh, the minute to minute combat, driving cars around and stuff that serves that purpose. Um, and scouting really felt, um, uh, like it fit in that, uh, in that feeling of what you would do if you were really in a survival situation. You would have somebody every day going out and keeping lookout for you and, and letting you know what was going on, especially in this situation where communication breaks down. Uh, modern communication breaks down, and I can't look at Google Maps and figure out where the zombie hordes are. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the search system, and I'm, it, it's immensely gratifying to hear somebody uh, recognize and call out the fact that <laughs> all of the work that we've put into making sure that the the world was logically populated with the content that you're searching for, um, and see that yes, yeah, if you go to kitchens you're gonna find food. If you um, if you're searching in a restaurant, you're gonna find food. If you're looking for fuel and you go to a gas station, you're gonna find fuel or warehouses and things like that. Or you're you're gonna find more uh like tools and weapons that are like tools in the, the shed behind the house and you're gonna find you're not gonna find a machete in somebody's bedroom. Um, you're gonna find that out in their garage. Um, that uh, was pretty much our intent from the get go. There wasn't a lot of evolution to that system. It was just an awful lot of work to um, for, for us to, to mark all that stuff up. And there were a couple of just champion champions uh, on the team that, that made sure that all that it, it, it's really it's grunt labor at the point where you're populating the volume of content that we're talking about, um, that it was uh, populated correctly and marked up correctly. Because we kind of do that on a – we do it at multiple levels. Um, we say, hey, this is a house. But we also call out rooms in the house. This is a, a, a kitchen in a house. And then individual objects in those spaces that kind of get called out further. Um, so uh, we know that refrigerators are only going to be populated with certain types of content. And they're not going to fall back to something where suddenly you're going to find a gun in a refrigerator. Unless we were able to do something where it was a gun with a note on it that said, hey, I'm hiding this gun in the refrigerator. <laughs>
0: And I love that fogey as a guy who plays a lot of games, you know, you, you kill like uh, a cloud of wasps in Diablo and they drop a plate mail helmet or something, <laughs> or, you know, that, that just, that's the sort of thing that just as gamers, we are so inured to like, okay, that's going to happen. Uh, that it's so nice to see when, you know, drops basically and are scavenging stuff is, is part of the world building. Uh, yeah. Uh, All right, so now is the part of the podcast, Foggy, where uh, you're kind of in trouble with me for a couple of things. You ready for this? Yeah, I think so. Okay. The first one, this is a minor thing. It's my own bag. I hate spoilers. Uh, I don't tend to watch a lot of movie trailers because I like to discover this stuff um, as the storyteller wants me to discover it. I feel like you guys have a really cool discovery in the middle of the map that got ruined in a freaking screenshot. Uh, If I say that, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, do I need to say further? Does it kind of make sense what I'm talking about?
1: Are we spoiling it for for your listeners if we we talk about what it is? I kind of want not
0: to just because I think there might be people who haven't even gotten that far. By the way, this is a game that even though there's story beats and even though you can end it, this is a game you could pretty much play perpetually. Uh, And we'll talk a bit about your future plans for that. But I feel there are probably listening a lot of people who haven't found this and who might have seen the stupid screenshot. And I just can't help but think what an awesome discovery that would have been to make on my own without having seen the screenshot of it first. And there are so yeah. few screenshots published. And I understand that that's part of what you need to do to create buzz and to make people want to play a game. But I even love the idea that a piece of this thing that you find I later saw – I saw on the road. And if I had seen that piece on the road and thought, "Wait, what is that? Is that? Does that? My gosh, that's a such and such." And then later, because it's a clue to what you later find. And I think, anyway, I just, uh, just I hate that screenshot. <laughs> I just it, it, I feel like it robbed me of, of what would have been an incredible moment in the game. Uh, uh, I'm really
1: sorry. <laughs> part of it is like you know when, when you you do get some sort of marketing folks and stuff involved, they want the coolest screenshot and that thing that you're talking about does make for some really cool screenshot.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, 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 all right. So, and I, also a part of a lot of uh good sort of apocalypse stories. Um, you know, I think of, there's a great scene in the Steven Spielberg war of the worlds. There's this cool uh, uh, apocalyptic movie where everybody vanishes from New Zealand called, I think this quiet earth. Um, and you guys do in the middle of the map something that we've seen in these other movies uh, that I really like uh, so at any rate it's spoiled in the screenshot uh, t- so my, my requests are take that stupid screenshot down uh, I will,
1: but, I'll call the internet and see if we can get rid of it
0: yes have the internet remove that Uh Oh, and while I'm making, uh, specious requests, uh, can you please patch out, uh, the feral zombies? Or the, not specifically, I, not, it's, it's one specific one, the super fast ones. Are they called feral zombies? The ferals, yeah. Yeah. I've lost way too many survivors to that thing. Uh, I, I break out in a cold sweat anytime somebody wants to do a mission to track down a feral zombie. I feel like telling them, uh, you know what, go talk to the Wilkerson's, see if they'll help you with that. <laughs> I can handle the other, you know, bloaters, whatever, even the big guys, that's fine. Those feral guys, and and part of it too, uh, Foggy, is I think I have a history with them, because that's how I lost Maya, uh, is a freaking feral zombie. So I've got a history with them. They terrify me. I don't like them. Please patch them out of the game.
1: I'll I'll, I'll, uh, put that on our list of things to tackle.
0: Okay, but here's my non-specious complaint, and I kind of understand why you guys did it. I want to hear a little bit from you. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe I could be brought around on it, so I'm just going to say I don't like this. I want you to try to sell me on it. Uh, The game is heavily based on, you know, time is a precious resource when I'm playing, because when I'm going out and jogging with one of my characters to build up his cardio, missions are popping up. You know, the time I spend in this game is a precious resource Time that I'm not, you know, missions can expire. Uh, I did learn at some point, okay, this is a story mission. It's going to wait for me. That's fine. But there are other things that won't wait for me. Um, part of my supplies get consumed uh, over time. So one of the things that you guys do is that when the player is not playing, you do let the simulation, to a certain extent, continue to run. Now, you have also been very clear about saying, you know, it's not gonna kill everyone if you don't play for a week. We hit you harder the first day, and then with each increasing day, it has less impact. Right. But there's still this idea that when I'm not playing, that time, that precious resource, is still, I'm still being docked for that. Stuff is still right. happening. I can lose things. I can maybe gain things. It can go either way. Ideally, right. I've, I've set up a stable, Income, so I won't get dinged too hard. But people can die when I'm gone. Um, I initially really didn't like that. I may be still at the not liking it stage. Uh, fogey sell me on that feature.
1: Okay, I'm going to approach this in kind of two parts. Okay. Uh, the first, I'm going to kind of explain the philosophy and the reasoning behind uh, the design decision to have the, those those uh, systems in, and then I'll uh, kind of talk about. Um, what we're doing now that they've encountered uh, players and player uh, player feedback that we've gotten, um, so we we didn't want to have mechanics that let players control time like uh, Harvest Moon or uh, or GTA where it's like, hey, if you save, you're going to move forward six hours, because or Fallout,
0: where you just hit a select button and you run forward time as much as you want,
1: right? Like Bethesda otherwise it disrupts the. Uh, the 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 core concept of kind of survival and having a family and 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 being in the space um you know if if you could move time forward anytime you could take a guy back to the house and and have him go to sleep and wake up six hours later refreshed, a lot of players would probably just have their one main character um they wouldn't switch they would just stick with the one dude um and then they'd be in pretty bad shape when they have to start over but uh But we, we didn't want players to, to kind of play one guy exclusively and uh, disrupt the systems that we built for fatigue, which really affect, you know, survival, the feel of survival, people getting tired, people um, uh, needing to rest. So uh, so we didn't want to have stuff that allows you to skip forward. Um, and that window where time does move forward, uh, Rebuild is a great example. I mean, you, you set a lot of things in motion into that game. And then you um, you hit next day essentially, and that's when everything happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, their simulation moves forward. You tick off, uh, you know, you count down on the stuff that you're that you're working on, and that's when they say, "Oh, here's what happened in the night." You know, the zombies came and did this, or this guy went crazy and he's he's uh, we needed to put him down. Um, so in some ways, it's, it would have been really really difficult for us to do. Um, the kind of simulation and have the kind of events that happen when you're offline happen when you're online. Um, like we describe scenarios that occur when you're, when you're, um, when you're offline, when you come back, we say, Hey, here's, here's what happened. Here's why this character died, or here's why these resources, you know, got lost in a, a fire or got eaten by rats or whatever. But that would be exceedingly difficult for us to do when you're actually in the game um, without resorting to, to some uh, Tom Coolery. we would have to really uh, we would have to do some kind of broken stuff to make that that work really well. Um, we can't have character but uh, I kind of want to talk to you about this anyway and we get into maybe talking about other survival games and, and, uh, and even playing don't starve um, but the level of abstraction that they're able to achieve because of the kind of graphical fidelity in that game, uh, is something that that we struggle with because of the the control and the graphical fidelity in our game. Um, we can't just light a fire somewhere and burn down a forest, for instance. Um, so we kind of, for certain things that we can't, um, that we couldn't actually simulate in front of the players and say, "Hey, look, there's this thing that's happening." Um, those were generally reserved for uh, the offline progress. We also wanted to to make you feel like. Um, this is a real world. You know, it's part of our world-building strategy to make you feel like, hey, stuff happens in the real world, and when you're not here, stuff is going to happen. Um, and also to get kind of a, a feeling of an MMO, because ultimately that's, you know, kind of our target. And if you were to be playing this in the context of an MMO and set up a bunch of stuff and come back, you might discover that the world moved on without you, and, and content had progressed in a way that was. Um, you know, other players are influencing the world. The world states moving forward, and now you you kind of missed out on some stuff while you were gone. Um, that said, uh, <laughs> right out of the gate, we had uh, a pretty nasty bug where it was not the intent of the system to ever kill any of your playable characters uh, while you were offline. We never wanted you to come back and go, "Hey, my Marcus, who I had maxed out completely." <laughs> decided to wander off in the woods and kill himself or some, some, <laughs> that was not the intent of the system. We did not want to screw players out of, uh, of their time or effort. So that was a bug that got fixed in the latest patch. Um, uh, non-playable characters, characters that are kind of in your community that aren't your playable characters yet, that stuff can still happen to them. Uh, but it shouldn't happen to any of the playable characters. Mm-hmm. Um, we also backed off a little bit on some of the other real-time elements that were happening in the simulation. Um, for instance, uh, if you were over the cap in uh, resources, um, materials, food, ammo, whatever, if you were over sort of the soft cap that we have, um, they would they would just get lopped off um, on next day. And now the the way we handle the attrition there, if you kind of go over the cap that we have is um, we we only do that when you're online. So we're not kind of screwing players out of influence. We're not screwing players out of, uh, of the resources that they've gone and they've gathered. Um, that stuff stays intact. Uh, so we are kind of backing off a little bit on that. The, the player response to it has not been amazing. I do think it's still a really uh, strong world-building device for us. Um, but moving forward, I think the kind of things that we do there might change quite a bit. Here
0: Well, well. here's kind of what uh, – the philosophy I like, and actually one of the things that sold me most on it, uh, I've written a few articles about state of decay, and in one of them, I forget which one, one of the uh, commenters said something – and he was just being flip, uh, not in a mean way, but he's being flip. But he made an incredibly good point that almost entirely changed my mind, and he said something along the lines of, well, it is called state of decay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I was like, oh, if you're going to appeal to that kind of narrative level, then w- well played. That I, I think I'm kind of buying that Cause, because because there there is this sense that entropy or decay is is constantly happening even when I'm not playing, and so when I think of well, that's in the title of the game for Pete's sake. Fair enough. Let them have that. You know, let them do that to me if they want. Um, so, I, and I do appreciate the deli- design philosophy behind it. And one of the things I've also said is that even if I don't like it, by golly, I I I, we, I want you guys to stick to your guns on this. Uh, it's clearly something you've thought about. I like your explanations for it. Me not liking a feature, I, I think sometimes I just need to suck up and accept the designer vision. And I clearly see you have this here. But one of the things where I think the the vision kind of um, crumbles a little bit at at a practical level, is what this does for me is it makes me want to not stop playing. Like I feel, and that's okay, like I I like playing the game and I want to keep playing the game, but I feel like in a way, if I keep playing, if I were to sit down with State of Decay and in one whack play through the entire game, I would avoid certain negative effects. Right. Certain things would never happen to me, so therefore you are rewarding. It's not that you're punishing me when I'm offline because I kind of like the approach, but instead what you're doing is you're rewarding people, and this is just a weird psychological thing, but I kind of feel like you're rewarding people who sit down and play it for 8, 10 hours at a time uh, by letting them avoid certain negative effects. Um, and I don't know how you would work around that. Uh because I do kind of like the idea. It's another thing I've come to appreciate that when I come back, when I sit down to play, it's okay. Let's see what's happened. Let's see who's wandered off. Let's see. Oh, look, somebody ate all of the food. Um, <laughs> I, I like this sense of. Oh, look. Uh, oh, Alan Gunderson found me a bunch of ammo. Good on you, Alan. You know, I like that kind of thing. Like when I sit down to play, it's like a new turn in rebuild. I get a little update, a little report. Over what happened during that downtime, I do enjoy that. But what I don't enjoy is, you know what? I need to keep playing for ten hours to avoid these negative effects. You
1: know, uh, I, uh, and, and this is kind of reflected in the, the specific elements that we've sort of backed off on. Is we we don't want players to feel like they're being punished for not playing. We don't want them to feel that way. Um we want um, which is why like specifically with the resources and people are coming back and they're like, Oh, I had all of this stuff and I had a plan for it. I was gonna use it, but I had to log off and I was just gonna do it first thing the next day and right. all of it's gone. And especially in the context of the fact that the resources are finite in the world. So having those things just disappear before. Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are you serious? <laughs> Holy cats. Now I'm terrified. Wow, I did not know I mean that makes sense. If the cars are so there's only so much food, so many. So I couldn't sit down and play this infinitely. Then,
1: um, you know, we're working on that. Uh, but there, there are uh, there are there are elements that, yeah, with like you the like the material resources that you go and you scavenge and you bring back. There are ways to kind of set up some. Um, some trickle of that in but like uh that's gonna dry up at some point the the number of resources that are actually sitting where well, we don't reseed it unless you start a new game so yeah um so that
0: i kind of uh, love hearing that Foggy. i mean i kind of think that's very cool i mean it's scary but that's very cool to hear
1: well and that's why that's why in particular we had to back off on that um you know it felt like a really bad fit to have suddenly somebody comes back and they're like i you know for example i collected every single uh material resource in the game in my last playthrough and then i logged in and they're all gone it's like well now you have to or ever have a new base or new facility but you could get through the game that way but it's going to hamstring you pretty good right right uh, so
0: uh where uh you said there was some negative like th- there was some pushback from players like that that was one of the vocal complaints is people were like hey don't do this and, and that sort of sparked a bit of a response in softening uh, that approach.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we make games for people to have fun. Um, we, we don't want people to dread coming back to our games because that's a, a pretty odd place to find yourself in as well, right? You, <laughs> you stopped playing it. Now you're like, oh, I don't want to start playing again because I know it's going to be whatever is in there is going to be bad. Um, so uh, I think from a philosophical standpoint, um, having it feel like the world is progressing, having it feel like um, there is, you know, some decay, uh, as we have kind of called out, uh, is important, and getting that MMO feel uh, is kind of important for uh, our future direction. Um, but uh, making players feel like it's it's kind of a totally random thing, having it all just be punishing and hellacious, it's just not quite the right fit, you do want to come back and and have those good moments as well. And you don't want the bad moments to be utterly devastating. Cause I don't, I would personally, uh, shelf moment, uh, a game that I dumped a bunch of time into one of my characters and had him all maxed out and come back and have him be, uh, just killed by some random thing that happened while I was offline. And I didn't have control of that guy, which is why we immediately fixed that. And that was in Title Update 1, which, you know, it didn't patch correctly. Um, we immediately fixed that. It, it, we're really sorry about that for all the people that are playing that have lost characters in that way. Um, we wanted to get that sorted out post-haste. But it's fixed uh, now, so no fear.
0: It's fixed now, and the Title 1 update and 2 update rolled together. A lot of great changes. Yeah. Uh, is there Are there any outstanding issues now that are coming in another title update? Do you feel like for the most part it's stable and now you're looking forward to future plans? Uh, what what kind of, are, well, let me just put it that way. Are there outstanding issues right now that you feel need to be addressed?
1: Uh, I think there there might be a couple. What what happens basically every time we put out a title update is we kind of have to feel things out again and we have to see uh, what the community is saying, what people are reporting like, hey, hey this looks broken. And then you kind of have to go through the process of looking into whether or not it's a, it's, you know, with a big sandbox world and with a lot of procedural generation, sometimes you just get bad rolls. Right, um, right, So we have to determine whether or not somebody actually has a problem or if they just got kind of – they're getting screwed on luck. Um, so we're just at sort of the beginning part of that phase that Title Update 2 came out last week. We're starting to get different reports on, hey, this is broken. Hey, that's broken. But then somebody will chime in and go, that's not what I have. It's right. It's working fine for me. So we're actively um, trying to figure out what the the things are that that we are potentially going to put into the next title update. Um, and while we're doing that, we are absolutely talking about um, future plans. And that's kind of another part of the uh, the announcement that we made this morning. With no co-op. We're we're definitely working on uh, sandbox mode um, for DLC. Mm-hmm. And help uh, get that done. Go so ahead. by
0: the way, don't forget to put at the top of the patch notes uh, to the. Top of your to-do list. Uh, patch out those feral zombies. Don't
1: forget that one. For Tom Chick. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: alright, so, uh, the, uh, so, as I mentioned before, I'm totally fine with the co-op being out. I, as a single-player game, I'm really liking it. I appreciate the way the systems fit together. I know the co-op would break some of that. I am also, um, just delighted that you guys are working on a sandbox mode. Um, that has, has been announced. You can't talk too specifically about that, I understand. Um but can you tell me some of the challenges that you're facing in terms of how to adapt this to a sandbox mode? Is that something you could just I can talk about
1: that a little bit. Um, uh-huh. You know, there are, there are a lot of hooks in some of the mission systems. There are a lot of hooks in, in the game in general. They're kind of based around it being um, uh, having a certain structure, like having Lily around as your radio operator. That's part of the story. Um, and having that be sandboxed. You know, that might be a thing where we go, okay, well, every uh, time you roll the dice and, and get a new sandbox character, um, maybe you're going to have to have a, a lily equivalent um, in order for us to get it out, you know, in a reasonable time without having to, to rejigger the entire uh, setup. Um, a lot of it is kind of how those systems interact and how those, how those play out and how things are, are scheduled. Um, But, you know, there was a point in time where we essentially had the early workings of something like the sandbox mode where we just kind of randomly throw you into, and we use this for testing, randomly throw you into this survivor situation with a random set of guys and uh, a random base that we chose on the map. um, And we're just like, okay, go. Um, and it worked uh, kind of, but what we would do is we would throw you in at a specific story point as well, and you would kind of progress through at that. So we'd have to figure out, you know, what all this, the pieces are that we're going to take out. Um, I personally uh, want to get some systems in place to, to allow for a little bit more of a custom experience. We'll see how that shakes out and what those specific plans end up being. Um, but uh, we've got a lot of people out there that want the game to be harder, um, I would love to be able to explore some of those things um, potentially. Um, we've got a lot of people out there who uh, uh, would like the game to, you know, kind of take a different shape and, and want, want to see what we can do about that. You really have it be sandboxy um, in terms of players being able to have some say. Maybe uh, it's, uh, it's getting kind of hard to talk about. <laughs> I understand. Let me. Uh, so I hear you talking and
0: here is what I would hope for from a sandbox mode, uh, and I'm just going to put this on the table and leave it foggy, and then I'm going to move on and ask you another question, so you don't have to comment on this. But when I think of what would, you know, I love playing through, and I, I'm looking forward to a second playthrough where I can see how some of the story beats might happen a little differently. But when I think of playing this as a sandbox mode, uh, there are a couple things that come to mind for me. I love the idea of making the game harder, so much so that like any like a really good survival game and I've been playing a lot of Don't Starve lately. And one of the things I really love about Don't Starve is that it can shunt me into a fail state. And not even sorry, a fail state. I can just suddenly die, the game can end. Uh in that regard, I would love to be able to play a brutally difficult sandbox state of decay where I can fail. Where everything can just look horrible and I am running out of people and we're starving to death and we don't have enough ammo. Um, and the, only, the, the best way, I think, to force me to see something through like that through to the end would be some sort of a scoring system. Yeah. So that's what I hope for with State of Decay is wanting to play and maybe jigger the parameters to give me a scoring modifier, see it through to the gory end. Because, by the way, Rebuild does this. You know, when I play Rebuild, I can choose the – I think she even calls it impossible. I can choose the impossible difficulty level, and it'll give me a scoring level. It'll give me a score at the end, which encourages me that no matter how bleak things look, see it through to the end so I can just get a few more points. Uh, I'd love to see something like that when you guys finally come to uh, figure out how to make this play as, as a sandbox mode. So I'm excited to hear at some point when you guys can talk about it what you have in store. Um, I'm looking forward to that Real quick, I want to give a shout out I want to know what it was like the first time you heard uh, some of Jasper Kidd's and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly Jasper. I think he's Danish Jasper Kidd, yeah It is Jasper Kidd, okay uh, I, I love the soundtrack and I love how it has these kind of forlorn tracks and how some of it is kind of slow how there's this kind of cool 80s action music <laughs> at times um, and <laughs> Well, it must have been really thrilling to hear that for the first time.
1: Oh, it, 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 was, it was amazing. And um, so uh, the Assassin's Creed 2 uh, score that Jesper did is pretty much my favorite game music of all time, or certainly was before he started working on our game. And, um, and so we started talking with Jesper, um, and uh, our audio director was working with him. Um, and Jesper, super cool extremely flexible had always kind of wanted to do uh, a zombie horror game so he had he already had stuff in mind he already had kind of this vision and being able to have him come in see what we were doing um and uh tap into that for the the work that he did and he was super flexible When we would give kind of back and forth we would get a piece and give kind of some notes on it and you would come back and and it's like it would show up and it would be amazing. We would give notes and it would come back even more amazing. And I have some of the uh, I have some of those original scratch tracks and I still just listen to them like this is fantastic. So I can't say enough about the guy. He's uh, he's one of the best guys in the industry, uh, hands down. And uh, and I'm so thrilled that we managed to get him for the music for this game. Yeah,
0: it is great stuff. So the, the uh, soundtrack is available on uh, iTunes. Uh, I encourage folks to to check that out. Um, mm-hmm. And I find myself listening to it now when I'm playing other games. So I kind of feel like I'm I'm cheating on State of Decay in a way. <laughs> I've ex- <laughs> I've exported the soundtrack to other games with lesser soundtracks
1: at this point. To hear that, but
0: yeah. What uh, I presume you're are, are you a big zombie guy? You've got to be.
1: Uh yeah, I it, you know it it got to a, a a saturation point when we were working on the game where I was like oh I can't take anymore but yeah um I've been uh, I've been a zombie guy for a long time uh my my email and my uh and my uh my gamer tag uh all have zombie incorporated in there and they've been there for a long time.
0: What is the big deal with zombies? Why is that a thing?
1: You know. <laughs> it's one of those tricky things to tap into, right? It's, um, there's a, there's a terror there for, for me personally, of of that, um, loss of control. You know, if, if I were to be, be, you know, the infection part's kind of like the scary part. Like you get bitten. It's like, ah, oh, now it's inevitable. I'm, I'm completely screwed. And I hate this. And having to make the hard choice, knowing that, facing your mortality in a very real, very sudden way, Um, just when you think about it existentially, it becomes very... um, uh, It's it's something that my brain just chews on and chews on. And then, you know, it's funny that in all the zombie movies, it's the human factor that ends up being the real thing. The zombies are catalysts.
0: Uh, The infection mechanic is something that I think is notoriously difficult for games to deal with, because you can't very well have a game where when you get scratched or bitten, you know, when you take a little bit of damage, your your character is doomed. Uh, was that ever something you guys explored or maybe considered?
1: Yeah, um, we... Originally, the way sort of the death system worked in the game was um, you did have, like, an infection level, latent infection level, and that would go up over time. And it wasn't the case, necessarily, that when you went down from a zombie... Um, uh, like the way you do now, um, you would, you know, screen fade to black, you'd wake up back in your base, and you'd be okay, but your infection level would have jumped up significantly. Um, and it was only when your infection level had maxed out um, would we have sort of the death state. But that didn't feel right. It didn't have the right sort of immediacy or um, uh, build the right kind of, uh, excuse me, fear into into players when you were playing you weren't if you were kind of there it's like yeah i died but i've got like three more lives on this dude so it doesn't really matter uh
0: it's there's a game uh not very good game in ways in ways i loved it but there was a resident evil uh operation raccoon city game uh that had a really cool infection mechanic and it's something that i haven't seen in Many video games, it's because it is difficult to do, but they had this concept where if you're playing cooperative with other players, your infection level would build up. And if it gets to a certain point, you lose control of your character and you start attacking the other players. Uh, and you could try to wrestle that control back, but I, I was really grateful that they tried to do that because it is, it's a fundamental part of zombie mythology that just doesn't lend itself to gameplay very
1: well. Yeah, it's um, super to get, to get one shot by a single bite. Uh, oh, man. Uh, please, was, go ahead, sorry. I love that idea, that abstraction of like trying to fight it off and trying to, to get control of your character back and, and having to explain to your friends maybe over the headset, like, no, I'm sorry, it's not
0: me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when you do a sandbox mode for State of Decay, patch that in where any damage turns your character and give it a times 10 score multiplier. <laughs> uh what uh how do you fall on the fast zombies versus slow zombies argument
1: uh you know i like i like the uh i like the explanation where it's like if they were recently turned they're still fast they've still got some of that muscle coordination um so, but over time the decay sets in and the atrophy and that slows them down that's kind of my favorite version of the uh mythology okay
0: how do you feel about people calling 28 Days Later a zombie movie?
1: I think it's pretty good. You know, it, it, it functionally, it, they're infected with rage, but, you know, the, the only way out is to, to kill them. Um, so, yeah, I go back and forth, but I consider them zombie movies.
0: So you're not one of these purists who says a zombie has to be risen from the dead and slow.
1: You're, yeah. you're okay
0: with the, the looser interpretations.
1: The looser interpretation works for me. Uh, that that movie, The Crazies, I yep. also consider a zombie movie, uh, even though people are like, oh, well, you kind of just go crazy, right? I'm like, yeah, it's a zombie movie. They just you know, wanted to dress it up a little different.
0: For, for me, Fogey, what determines whether it's a zombie movie is whether or not it's trying to tap into... Some of the fundamental fears that are reflected in zombies, namely this idea of fear of the mob, fear of losing your identity, fear of being betrayed by people that you know. Uh, you know, if if your monster or your conceit is tapping into those things, I think it's fair to call you a zombie movie. So I'm definitely on board with calling the crazies uh, a zombie movie.
1: Yeah. I think that's a pretty good metric, actually. Yeah.
0: Uh, Foggy, you are about to be—you are uh, all of civilization. We're going to have to reboot it. Sorry about that. So we now get to choose three zombie movies uh, to preserve in this reboot of civilization to uh, help people ex- to explain to future generations after the reboot of civilization what the deal is with zombies. You, Foggy, are in charge with picking what three zombie movies will be preserved to express zombie mythology. Go. <laughs> um, is rough. Okay, so this
1: is, this is entirely personal, and there's some guys on the team that are probably going to plant my head off for this one, but the first you know what,
0: one... Uh, you know what, Foggy? They haven't been hired, have they? This is your job. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. I am the apocalypse decider. Uh, uh, so the first one for me is the, um, the Night of the Living Dead remake, not the ah, original. With so the re- redhead,
0: with the redhead dead. Patricia Tallman, I think the woman from Babylon 5. All right.
1: Exactly right. I had a massive crush on her, uh, when I was a kid. That movie came on quite a bit, uh, just on the, the, the UHF channels that came in, <laughs> in my house. And it would, you know, some weekends it would just be on that channel. And anytime it came on, I loved it. I hated it when I, if I showed up to that movie, uh, after the scene where she kind of had to change out of her jeans, um, <laughs> swap her clothes out. It was, she was like in a dress or something at the beginning and she has to swap out. I loved her brother at the beginning. He is super creepy and the whole the, the Barbara stuff, and that was the version I saw first. And somebody didn't show me the the original uh, until later, and I was like, "Oh, this isn't this isn't right," you know? Oh, that's hilarious! No one. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. I understand then. <laughs> so that's a very personal choice, but I love that one. Um, did Did Tom Savini direct that? By the way, I think so. I think that okay. was that was what happened. And, and right there's a whole there's a whole thing behind Romero not having the actual rights to the original because he forgot to put a line of text in one of the title screens or something. Um, I forget. Wow. This I had
0: no idea about this. So did that impact so that's how somebody could just make a movie and call it night of the living dead without necessarily Romero's blessing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that literally he forgot to put like a copyright or a trademark did um, at the beginning I mean, we'd have to look at the internet to be sure but I think basically people are like cool thanks thanks for the free movie dude and <laughs> we're distributing it and doing whatever they wanted to because he didn't, didn't jump through all the weird legal hoops that you have right. to do as an artist to own the thing that you've created well, it's um, kind
0: of funny when you think, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know if people know this, but, but the original Night of the Living Dead was made completely outside of the, that time studio system. It was just a dude in, I think, Pittsburgh or something, uh, just making a movie with basically his buddies, if I'm not mistaken, right? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, all right, so you are going to take the remake over the original,
1: fair enough. Okay. Okay. Are, are you also choosing, or is this just, this is all one-sided? You're forcing me down this dark path. Oh, uh,
0: I actually had not thought of what I would answer. I could do that, but uh, no, I'm not My- going to choose. This is about you, fogie You've gotten the job. Although I would say, you know, this is your job. You have been appointed this. I would be one of the dissenting opinions who would basically say, how dare you choose the remake over the original? <laughs> because I kind of, and I saw the original first, but I, I think the original just appreciates... Well, it certainly created zombie mythology as we know it today. But there are just so many things in there that hold up, um, and there are so many bold elements. Like I think Patricia Tallman being the, the sort of the lead. Like there's so much cheesecake there, and I love that she's a beautiful woman. But I just feel like there's kind of a pandering to cinematic sensibilities in the remake. And there's none of that in the original. The original, by having a, a black man as the main character, and then having him killed by these redneck national guardsmen at the end—I well, mean, that was so subversive back
1: then. Oh, well, it was—it was absolutely. And uh, I will—I will call you out though, Patricia. Partic- Partic- Tallman, Partic- 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 yeah. like compared to the, the the female lead in the original, she's such a strong character, right? And I know—I know that having Kirby the lead instead of um, having uh, it's candy man right <laughs> what's his name tony todd uh, no wait that wasn't
0: yeah. Yeah. It's no. Tony Todd. hold on i'm googling this tony todd is not the guy from he was in uh dawn of the dead but he wasn't in night of the living dead uh no i i think
1: he was in the remake i think oh was... no, in the remake right right i thought you were saying the original night of the living dead no no no, no, no. in the remake i think he's he's the he's the, he's the tall black guy because wasn't uh, he
0: in Dawn of the Dead, the mall one? That was Tony Todd, wasn't it? Uh,
1: nope. I don't no? think so. All right. You, yeah. You're, you're uh, way up. We're getting into IMDB territory. <laughs> but you mentioned Dawn of the Dead, that's my second pick.
0: Oh, Ken Forey. Uh, you know what? I'm being a jerk. I think I'm confusing a, a, a classic horror actor named Ken Forey, who's still working, by the way. I think he's the guy from, from Dawn of the Dead. Tony Todd was in the remake. So... You're right, I was definitely confused, but I just pulled that name out of my head, so <laughs> So at any rate, so uh, you were you wanted to correct me. You see, basically you're saying Patricia Tallman, she's not just cheesecake, she's a strong female character, right?
1: Yeah, I thought she was yeah. pretty good, you know, and, and then you reach the end of the movie and she's like, What the hell are we doing? Let's just go and having her having her kind of be a really strong character like that, I was like, Oh yeah, I like chicks like that. Fair point. Uh, <laughs> um uh, Number two, I think, is the original Dawn of the Dead. Um, you know, the, the classic, uh, there's such a fantasy to being like, hey, we're freeing them all, we can do whatever we want, all this stuff, and, and, and we're going to rebuild civilization on the sporting goods store. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and they set the, you know, there are so many zombie tropes that come specifically from that movie um, that I absolutely love, and that was pretty much my go-to zombie movie. Uh, For quite a while, I would uh, just play that one. This was before Zombies kind of came back on with the the remake of Dawn of the Dead um, and became kind of mainstream again. Uh, I would just throw that on as a background movie and just have it going. Uh,
0: Two things I I definitely agree with you on Dawn of the Dead and two things I want to call out. You mentioned how many tropes were sort of established there. Uh, I think that's where we really started playing with the gore factor. You know, the original Night of the Living Dead has just goofy stuff where there's people eating a piece of liver or whatever, and it's in black and white, and, you know, back then that was shocking. But Dawn of the Dead is where, and actually, I I think that was Tom Savini doing the special effects, and he even gets ripped in half. But uh, that's where we started to really see this over the top gore that brought more to the forefront part of the terror of, uh, you know, part of the, fundamental terror of zombie mythology is just how awful it would be to be eaten alive oh you, yeah
1: the taken uh, out of the leg the helicopter yeah. stuff oh. yeah
0: yeah exactly uh, so that and just the bleakness of you know your friend being bitten and turned uh, yeah. you know here's this cool character he's badass you're rooting for him oh wait that's going to happen to him he's just going to turn into a freaking zombie that's, that's a terrible fate uh, yeah. you know uh, I, I just love how Dawn of the Dead introduced that trope as well. Yeah. All right, so now you get you have room for a third movie. We have the oh. remake of Night of the Living Dead. We have Dawn of the Dead. You can squeeze one more in there. Ah, oh, jeez. I know.
1: One, one more DVD.
0: <laughs>
1: one more. Yep. That's all. Humanity. All the other
0: ones. Yep. All the other ones will be banished forever.
1: Ah. Oh, this is hard. Uh, I'm gonna go with Shaun of the Dead. Um, uh you
0: would, wouldn't you?
1: I would um, I I really like the twist on it. I love the you know bringing the British humor into it. I love that um, I love that no character is safe in that. You know, I I love Zombieland, mm-hmm. but it, you reach a point in Zombieland where you're like no none of these guys are going to die. And nobody, you know, right. everybody in this core set of these four people, nobody everybody's safe. And that's really disappointing in a, kind of in a zombie movie. And I still love the action. And I still love some of the, the story beats and stuff like that. But, uh, in Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know, where, um, spoiler alert, uh, gets to the point where his mom had been bit and that, that reaction that he has to it. And it's, you know, he knows, like, he knows the rules of, of how these, these things work. And the, just the, how that, um, how Simon Pegg is able to flip from, Kind of comedy action movie mode uh, into this just this train wreck of a man who has to deal with the fact that his mother is about to turn into a zombie, and and then the the the, the character dynamic, the breakdown that happens in the group right at that moment where they're all pulling guns at each other and, and like corkscrews and stuff to, <laughs> to threaten each other uh, over the fact that his mom's going to turn and all that stuff. Oh man, I, I love that movie.
0: That's my favorite thing, too, about Shaun of the Dead is that ultimately, even though people think, oh, it's a Simon Pegg comedy, and it is, it's got a lot of that, it's ultimately also a good zombie movie. And as much like you, as much as I liked Zombieland, it's certainly a zombie movie in that it's about zombies, but I think that's ultimately a romantic comedy. You know, it's a (laughs) buddy movie that becomes a romantic comedy, and that's fine. You know, there's some cool zombie stuff in it, but unlike Shaun of the Dead, it never really becomes like a full blown actual zombie movie. It's just a cute romantic comedy with some fun stuff and zombies in it. Um, So fair enough. Um, So I would just say – so now you have me thinking. I I think if I was in charge – and I'm not. You've been in charge. But as the dissenting opinion, I would definitely say Dawn of the Dead. Take that. Just because it established so many tropes. It was still Romero playing with this mythos that he'd created. Uh, But I think I would really want to get in what what Danny Boyle did uh, with 28 Days Later. And I specifically also really love 28 Weeks Later. So I would would use 28 Days Later. And also, just because there's something so inherently ridiculous about zombies, um, and a lot of really good zombie movies know this and don't shy away from it. Um, I think of the Return of the Living Dead, the movie that Dan O'Bannon did. Um, yes. <laughs> but but for me, the best expression, Foggy, of knowing how absurd zombie movies are, and really playing with that without denigrating it, without making fun of it so much, uh, but having but having fun with it and appreciating it and bringing a genuine sense of affection for it. I really, really like Planet Terror, Robert Rodriguez's movie. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. So I might put Planet Terror in there, even though it's kind of a spoof. Uh, that, that's one that I really like. So, did, did you see World War Z? By the way, I've not seen it yet. Uh, what the the, the oh. guy who designed State of Decay has not yet gone to World
1: War Z. I didn't. I didn't design it by myself, so we can. That's I don't true. think I, Very <laughs> many of us have actually had a chance to go see it yet, either. Uh, it's just you know the timing of when it came out, the fact that I have. Two small kids <laughs> it makes it really. Oh, I see.
0: Right, it. that's not something you can take them to, I presume. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, might, I might actually try to go see it uh, this Friday. Uh, I don't want to
0: color anything uh, for you, but I, I would say, you know what? There's no hurry.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe you have to listen to your podcast first.
0: <laughs> actually, no, don't do that. We'll just spoil it for you. I mean, see it before you listen to us jaw about it. But uh, yeah, I, I was not really happy with it. But uh, yeah, did you read World War Z? By the way. Yes, I did. Because I didn't like the book either. So maybe if you appreciated the book, you'll like what they tried to do with it. But I didn't care for the book, and I certainly didn't uh, care for the movie. I
1: uh, like the book, all right. It was not my favorite sort of zombie book of, of the zombie books that I've read. Um, I'm kind of torn. like. Uh, did you ever read uh, Day by Day Armageddon?
0: No, you know what? I was going to ask you that because I know so – as someone who follows zombie movies like – like religiously I know almost nothing about zombie literature zombie books what are some good ones
1: you know there's a there's a there's a there's a lot of zombie garbage out there um, I think like I would call out day by day I'm like Armageddon is probably the the one of the cooler things that I've read um, that's been sort of in the zombie space um, I I I think the guy started it off literally as a, like a blog and he was kind of blogging like this stuff was actually happening to him. Mm-hmm. And then it just kept going and going and going and eventually turned it into a book. But it really kind of starts out with this first, you know, it's this first person account of, you know, the beginning of, of what's going on with the zombies. And it's this guy kind of just describing what happened during his day. So at first it's just kind of short little bits and then it kind of gets longer and longer and more involved. And there's some really cool imagery that he plays with. Um, uh, there's some really cool, like survival planning stuff that, that he gets into that a lot of the other ones I don't think play with as much, um, okay. in terms of, of how you, how would you realistically approach your apocalypse plan and, and how he did it made me go, Oh man, I'm second guessing everything I ever thought I would do in the case of a, of an apocalypse, um, okay. specifically a zombie apocalypse.
0: Uh, do you know the author's name offhand? Uh, you know, what? never mind. I can look that up. Uh, f- fair enough. Uh, it's a, it's yeah. a distinct. I'm sure the title will Google well. Uh yeah. All right. Anyway, I'll try yeah. that. Any, any other books come to mind?
1: You know, not, not for zombies necessarily, but um, for apocalypse stuff or, mm-hmm. or uh, sort of survival. Uh, the Passage by Justin Cronin.
0: Oh wait a uh, minute. Oh, uh, that's not that one. Is that the one where it's like a vampire?
1: Thrill? It is vampire. It kind of. Oh, and vampires, you, can hate it.
0: you know what? I didn't finish it. I read it, and then it does a weird jump where it goes like 40 years into the future, and there's this survivor culture, and I had no yeah. idea what was going on, I wasn't confident that the stuff he did beforehand was going to come around. So it's one of those books that I gave up on partway through. Um, you
1: know, it, it ended up paying off for me, and uh, uh, a lot of that slow burn at the beginning, and there's just tons of setup. Um we we're like 200 pages in and then some action happens and then there's like right. another 200 pages and then some more stuff happens. I, I liked it. Uh, I thought it was, uh, had some good survival stuff. Have you read, uh, the Wool series? The what uh, series? It's, it's called Wool. Uh, Hugh Howey wrote it. There's a, there's like a, if you go on, uh, like you can get a, a collection of it on Amazon of like the first five books. That's got some cool apocalypse stuff going. Wool
0: um, as in W-O-O-L?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think that would, that was probably more mainstream in terms of being digestible. They're like uh, super short stories, and they're kind of packed together okay. and driving kind of this this other situation. Um, I don't know. Getting into apocalypse stuff like Why the Last Man, I always liked the beginning of that, but then it kind of tapers off. That's comics, and I know you don't like comic nerds. You know
0: what? I can appreciate them. Uh, I just don't. Yeah, I. I have this weird thing where I. I would rather read a book than read something that competes. Where, where there are images and pictures at the same time. Or, I'm sorry, images and text competing for my attention. And that's kind of weird, and I realize it's an it's an odd uh, idiosyncrasy that I have. So I've never gotten into comics because of that. I've occasionally read some that I'm like, yeah, that would be cool. I would like it if I appreciated the medium more. But I yeah. just have my own weird hang-up. So what I'll do is I'll wait for something like Walking Dead to become a TV show uh, instead of a, a series of <laughs> graphic novels for me to right. read. Right. Um, uh, I can't let you go without asking your opinion on Walking Dead.
1: Uh, love it. Uh, I, I think uh, the the books kind of started going to the weeds for me a little bit, and I'd, I kind of stopped reading them around, like, book 70 or something like that. The show I've only watched what's on Netflix so far, and I thought um, it certainly has some ups and downs, and it's definitely different from the, uh, the books, um, but I quite like it. So you haven't – is the third season up yet? No, it's only second season on Netflix. Uh,
0: My favorite moments of that were, I think, near the end of the second season, the resolution of uh, Looking for Sophie, that plot line. I don't need to say more. Uh, At that point, that was the high point for my – when I adored Walking Dead. Um, The third season I'm not into, but I will say there's a a real treat at the opening of the third season, which is just a long sequence without any dialogue of them just – getting by uh i love that little bit um but how could you know ne- so you're not you haven't seen world war z and you're not keeping up with uh walking dead Foggy. Right. <laughs> but that's it you know what i would i would mind more about those things if you hadn't made a great zombie game
1: right my zombie cred has been shot to hell
0: but no, you know what? It, yeah, no, you've established it fully with the game. Like, if you'd made some middling zombie game, then I would have think, well, if only he'd seen more zombie movies and kept up with Walking Dead, his game might have been better. Uh- yeah.
1: <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to use the rest of my team as a crutch for my, my short run. <laughs>
0: All right, so, Fogey, real quick, just because I know we normally mention a uh, Game of the Week on this podcast, uh, you don't have to say too much about it, but if I were to ask you... What is your game of the week, what would you pick, and why, very briefly?
1: Uh, Rogue Legacy. Uh, It just came out last week. It's a Metroidvania roguelike, and it's got... uh, It's on the PC, too, isn't it? It's a PC game? PC game. I got it on Steam, and it has like a 10 million-style persistent meta progression. Like, if you ever played 10 million on uh, iOS, it's got sort of this structure that wraps around it. So when you go in for the roguelike and you end up with your character getting killed, there's still some progression that's happening every time you die. Hopefully. Um, uh, Interesting systems. I love Metroidvania style games. They really kind of tap into uh, the things I love there. Uh, A lot of cool, um, a lot of cool stuff Uh, as you kind of progress. I don't want to spoil kind of that metagame progression because there's some interesting, cool hooks, Um, but I had a lot of fun with it.
0: Is it so? When I think of a Metroidvania game, I think of something that's very carefully built and scripted, so that when you find this upgrade, it gets you through this door, and it becomes yeah. an elaborate um, like map design as part of it. Is this
1: what Rogue Legacy is? Is there anything procedurally generated? It, they procedurally generate the castle um, that you go into, and you go and you fight in. There, there, there are some systems that kind of play with that, and I don't want to like a there's some ways to kind of lock it down. You like you've seated it uh, one way you liked that version of the castle that you were in and you can kind of say, okay, I'm going to keep that and keep running Ah. through that. Um, but the, uh, they don't quite have that, um, that gate and key system you're talking about where, um, where you stop being able to make forward progress to kind of the new area until you get the thing that allows you to turn into mist and go through the grate or something like that. Right. But they do have, um, They do have some challenges that get built into the room, into some of the rooms that you're only going to be able to accomplish if you have uh, a certain set of um, like perks or you know things that change your movement abilities and things like that, uh, Uh where you're able to only going to be able to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish in those rooms if you have the right stuff. So it's got a little bit of that, but it's kind of tweaked a little bit.
0: And is the moment-to-moment gameplay? I'm thinking again, like a Metroidvania. Is it 2D side-scrolling combatty stuff?
1: Yeah, and then, have you, they have this really interesting mechanic where every time you die, uh, the next character you choose is the descendant, uh, your next descendant, kind of down the line. And so, but they but they give them all these weird genetic uh, traits like uh, nearsightedness and farsightedness, and then they play with uh, the visualization of the game. Um, uh, there's a, there's just a ton of different things, and they kind of affect how your character is able to interact with the world, and how they're how you as the player are able to kind of perceive the world. you can be colorblind, and they just take all the color out of everything. Uh, you can you have know what uh, Fo- go. You know, right
0: there, I want to say right there, Foggy. I think you sold me on it. <laughs> that right there, I'm like, well, that that sounds really clever, and I want to see what somebody who has done that is doing with their game.
1: Yeah, it's got a lot of little clever hooks like that, and that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right, good.
0: Uh, I want to briefly confess that my game of the week is... uh It's freaking Marvel Heroes, which is just a free-to-play, <laughs> kind of throwaway Diablo-alike with Marvel characters. And I got really mad when I lost a character to a server rollback that I'd found, and I was like, I'm not going to play this stupid game anymore. And I recently picked it up again, and I'm, I just feel so cheap. Because it's not not a great game design and there's so much of what they're doing is selling the business model and taking advantage of their IP and there's some things about it that are just really crass and there are parts of the gameplay that are just kind of superficial but uh, man I just I, I just feel so cheap for how much I enjoy that game and uh, I've gotten past my rage quitting and I'm now playing Marvel Heroes again So I,
1: lo- I love that you're not a comic book guy and you're totally hooked on this uh comic book universe.
0: Well, the funny thing is, Foggy, I'm really weird in that a lot of these things I will come to through their video game expressions. Like, yeah. I never got into The Lord of the Rings until I played this awesome real-time strategy game called Battle for Metal Earth 2, and then what really cemented it was Turbine's Lord of the Rings Online MMO. So for me, those made me what what minor claim I have to being a Tolkien geek. And now it's the same way with this Marvel stuff. Is it's all from playing video games, you know, Marvel versus Capcom, Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming to these IPs through the exact wrong direction. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, Fogie, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I, I just, uh, congratulations on the game. Uh, even more than how much I like it, I'm just really glad that it's doing well because a lot of times I'll like a game like this and it will become quote unquote a cult classic. Uh, I think you guys are way too commercially successful to ever be written off as a cult classic, so congratulations on what I think. I, I think you guys are just a straight-up, flat-out classic at this
1: point. Oh, Thank you very much. Uh, it's, been, it's been great uh, talking with you about all this stuff and hopefully shedding some light on some of the ways our game was made.
0: Yep, and, uh, get, remember, patch out that feral right. zombie, uh, or, cause I, you know, I've lost way too many people to him, uh, and I cannot wait to hear more about the, the sandbox stuff as you guys are working on that, uh, and thanks for hanging out with me today. So, um, uh, for, for, for everyone listening, join us, uh, next week. We will, uh, be having a, let me see, how to te- tease this. Um, he's a guy who did really, really interesting, cool stuff with a what many people would think of as a boring genre. So uh, that's my teaser. He will be joining uh, me and a co-host next week. Uh, tune in for that. Uh, and thanks to everyone for joining us. And we'll see you here.
1: That's gonna be a long podcast.